0: Ah, another great perspective review featuring incredible music. Remember, you can purchase this entire album filled with amazing skill and reverence at the link inside the show notes for this episode. TwoGuysTalking.com forward slash ET.
1: I'm Dr. Michael Lynch, co-host of ConspiracyAgents.com, and you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Two
0: Guys Talking is an internet radio show podcast, Providing you with complete, detailed, and always educational perspectives When it comes to television, feature films, DVDs, Blu-rays, and the hottest in online entertainment This week, it's Two Guys Talking E.T. The Extraterrestrial, 1982, directed by Steven Spielberg The night sky has always held wonder, stars in every conceivable corner, flickers of light that not everyone can explain. The potential of there being something other than us out there. The concepts and sights make the mind real. When I was 12, I saw my first alien, albeit on the silver screen, but there it was. In 1982, director Steven Spielberg took us on an extraterrestrial journey that continues to transport viewers, old and new, to highs, feelings, and memories that trip the night fantastic. This is the perspective review of Steven Spielberg's E.T., The Extraterrestrial, 1982. A look back at 40 years of imagination via What Cops Watch on the Two Guys Talking podcast network. Greetings, everybody. I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts.
2: I'm Chris DiGiuseppe,
1: another host. And I'm Pat Doring, another host.
0: This is another wonderful connection point for you guys. And one of the great things about this is that I've been sharing with people all week about meeting with a bunch of cops to talk about E.T. Right. And the smiles that I have gotten every single time I'm I sure. tell about it is mm-hmm. great. And uh, it's one of the things that we're going to touch about inside this episode because, of course, it's what cops watch. But what we're also going to talk about are some of the very real-life response is that something like what you're seeing would actually trigger inside of modern-day America. (laughs) Right. There are so many differences now than there were back then. Again, something else that we'll get into Mm -hmm. that would make it a completely different experience for something like this to happen today Mm -hmm. versus what was. So a little bit of housekeeping first. My thanks to Lieutenant Pat and his ongoing crisis negotiation training, which I had the, again, wonderful pleasure participating in with the assortment of not only teams from all over the U S to learn more about crisis negotiation, but the actual showrunners of those teams. It's an honor to help you guys train up the future of crisis negotiation. And for those of you that are listening and only know a little bit about crisis negotiation, we're going to put a link inside the show notes over to our program. That is the perspective review of the negotiator, uh, the feature film of Samuel L Jackson and uh, Kevin Spacey. And inside of that, we run deep inside a Crisis Negotiation. Pat, tell people a little bit about it.
1: Oh, yeah. So well, uh, especially with this training, what we do is we, we do a 40-hour class. And one of those days, we do a scenario day. And Mike comes in, and he plays whatever character we want him to play that day. And what's cool about this is we do it all virtual. So we have people from all over the world. Um, in this particular class, we had two people from Australia and one person from Thailand. And then various people all from all over the United States. And what they do is they just basically learn the concept of what we call crisis negotiation, which is, you know, calming the situation down and kind of slowing the situation down. So,
0: Yeah. And what I love about it is that it's it's an instant mind game part for me because I want to help them develop the, and now what do we do of, of what's going on inside the situation? It's, just, it's a ton of fun. It's a piece that fuels me. Again, Pat's uh, stuff is in, incredibly detailed and a vital piece of what's going to be built inside of the community, especially the ones around you guys. So be sure to go listen to the perspective review of The Negotiator, which you can find over at twoguystalking.com forward slash negotiator. Minority Report Perspective Review. Chris and I recently had the incredible time mm-hmm. to sit down with the Z brothers, who right. are crypto analysts, yep. to sit down and talk about what was seen inside of The Minority Report, another feature film by Steven Spielberg. Man, it's just it's incredible to see what was happening back then inside of feature films that has now sprung into what is reality now, right. whether it be a virtual reality or all of you are listening to us via podcast somewhere on a device. That is likely taking advantage of many of the same processes that are showcased inside that movie, except it's happening for real.
2: Yeah, and to have uh, expert crypto experts on the show and just kind of get their perspective on it was, I think, enlightening.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. And again, you can find that perspective review over at twoguystalking.com forward slash minority report. Inside of just about every perspective review, there is an impactful soundtrack and or score that's going on. Well, this one is no exception. This is easily one of the most emotionally impactful soundtracks and scores that there are, I think, ever. I know Pat's going to have a little bit different take on it when we get to talking more about the soundtracks, but wow. Something else that's coming up inside of this episode for the first time ever in Two Guys Talking History is we're actually going to be talking to an orchestra player. It's going to tell us about what she thinks. She's a an English horn player. Mm-hmm. And she's going to be telling us what she thinks about the music inside of this. Again, it's another first for Two Guys Talking Content. And I can't wait to introduce all of you guys to Callie,
3: mm-hmm. who
0: has been a not only a, a wonderful broadcast partner in a variety of projects so far, but has a really, really great perspective on all things orchestra because guys. She's been doing that as long as you guys have been in law enforcement. Huh. And just a wonderful series of perspectives that she's going to bring inside this episode. We'll have her inside this episode later on. Guys, enough of housekeeping. Let's jump straight into the perspective review of E.T. 1982, directed by Steven Spielberg. Two
4: guys. Talk
0: E.T.
4: Ah, hype.
0: My goodness. Going back to look at trailers for E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Very, very interesting, especially to see the contrast in how trailers were delivered back in 1982 versus now. We don't typically date these programs, but we're recording this in 2022 and seeing the difference between what was presented as a trailer back then versus what is presented as the trailer now. It's not only a night and day difference. It's infinitely more suspenseful back then than what is conveyed nowadays. Sure. This is where we jump through and we talk about what we remember from this film. Do you guys remember where you saw this film, Chris? I believe it was in the theater. Okay. I
2: mean, you know, most things back then were in the theater. Yep. And it's just a, it, it's a much different experience. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, E.T. on the small screen, I don't, I don't think it's as impactful. Well, anything, anything isn't. I mean, it, theater was the go-to spot. That's yeah. And I think that, yeah. uh, you know, we've lost a lot of that.
0: No, there's no question. When, uh, again, I think uh, we're recording this post pandemic you have that splash damage as well and
2: it took longer to get movies out Mm -hmm. back then you know Mm -hmm. i mean it it took a longer period of time so perhaps and i don't know what your analysis of the trailers are but perhaps that's why they had to they had to make them impactful it took so long to get a movie out you wanted to get people there Mm -hmm. you know it's not like you were going to get a sequel the next year in nine months or whatnot Mm -hmm. and um you really had to put your all into it maybe that's it maybe not i don't know well, I think one of the. Oh, go
0: ahead, Pat. Where were you when you saw this first?
1: No, oh, I'm going to go theater too, and it, it just goes back to it was the '80s. Mm-hmm. So that's what you did. You went to the movie theaters. You know, mm-hmm. it was like the all your friends went to the movie theaters. I think at the time I was ten, so I'm probably assuming more than likely grandma and grandpa. That's usually was my movie theater trio because mm-hmm. I think the only one around back were the then older grandparents
0: was, or were the younger grandparents. Um, I think they were in their.
1: Late fifties, maybe okay. so about that yeah, time. Yeah. So they were still fairly younger, I guess, for grandparent wise. Yeah, but that's what that's always been my. Anytime I remember any kind of a big movie, it was either with my grandma and grandpa. So I mean, that's always. And like I said, eighties. I mean, that's what we used to do. I mean, we didn't have the luxury of big screen TVs and surround sound theaters and all that. So you had to go to the movie theater to get or that any, experience. Any other
2: kind of entertainment? Smartphones or you know, really even video games. The things that people entertain themselves at home. You know the big screen and the movie was bigger than life. Oh yeah, just because it was on the big screen. I yeah. Mean, oh, and
0: this one in particular, this one not only you know we, we don't ever get off world inside this movie, but it is out of this world. I right. mean, like every scene somehow takes you someplace else. Right. Um, that actually spills into the what Spielberg does in general, just about every film, which is he's got that the ability to instantly submerge you into whatever it is he's
2: painting. Yeah, it's hard to put your finger on, but there's there's always a flare. To his movies, mm-hmm. and you just don't know what you're going to get. Are you going to, you know, you get into it, and is it is it going to be something scary? Is going to be is it going to be poltergeist? Is it going to mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. close encounters? Is it mm-hmm. close encounters, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or is it uh, Super Eight? Did you see Super Eight? Mm-hmm. I did. You know, yeah. So I mean, he was big into the space movies, but what, you know, what variation were you going to get? What flair were you going to get? And he kept you guessing through the whole movie. Yeah. I, I don't know. I was. I'm always roped in by Spielberg's work.
0: Yeah, well, I, I, and I, that's what. Again, we're, we're gonna. This is gonna be a giant gush for Spielberg uh, bonanza. In case any of you are wondering, uh, where where I saw this film was at the Woodfield Mall. For those of you that are not familiar with the Woodfield Mall, it used to be the world's largest indoor mall that included indoor car dealerships. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a. It was the big deal. And I lived two and a half miles from it. You could see it from my apartment complex. And this was a wonderful time of life for me. Uh-huh. It was just outside of Chicago in a city called Schaumburg,
3: uh-huh.
0: which was right next to Hoffman Estates, where I spent most of my formative teen years. Uh-huh. And it just—it was—it was an extraordinary time. Everything that is showcased inside of this film—the riding of bikes—we rode bikes to this movie. Right. We locked our bikes up on this metal thing outside of the theater several times to go and watch this film. Right. And it's instant nostalgia bomb. When you consider all the emotions that are rolled up inside of this, it's just, it's amazing. The only thing that was more amazing was when my mom took my best friend Jeff and I to go see this film. Mm -hmm. Because, again, this isn't a visit down Mike Wilkerson brain lane, but it's often close, especially with a movie this impactful. 12 is a very interesting age because I can remember being and going down a very different path Mm -hmm. than where I know I have gone. This is a complete nod to Detective Cooper, who I also met at age 12. Huh? And uh, Detective Cooper and Mister Isaacson guided me to a completely different place this year. And this film was at the end of all of that discussion. It was end of summer. It was time to experience something different. And this movie instantly gave me that.
4: Two guys
0: talking. E T. The money. <laughs> ah, the always present quiz show questionnaire of how much money this. Feature film made. We always start with Chris because it's again the the first contestant coming up with the price is right or wrong.
2: One dollar. Well, I'm I'm confident that Pat already cheated and looked this up. But
0: <laughs> Chris, what did this make domestically?
2: Domestically? No, oh,
0: I'm sorry. What has this made domestically?
2: Has it made up till right. now? Correct. Oh. Which includes DVDs and streaming. Pretty and much.
0: I, I think there's always, what we'll always get after we issue one of these is like, oh, yeah, well, if I go and I buy the $19 movie today, mm-hmm. does the number grow? I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, I I, I can't know. answer that question. What I can tell you is that this made a shit ton of money. And so, uh, Chris, what is your number? I have absolutely no
2: idea. I'm going to go with uh, $582 million. $582 million. Okay,
1: Pat. Uh I'm not gonna go that high. I'd say four hundred and something million.
2: Four hundred and something
0: million. Hmm. It's interesting that you know that number so specifically, Pat. I'm I've said four hundred
1: and something. Is there accusation. a little bit of
0: detective thing that I said? No, actually, I sense that was a
1: random guess. Okay. All
3: right.
0: The number domestically for this feature film is four hundred and thirty-seven <laughs> million dollars. Again, this is one of those corn combines of cash that I love to talk about because there are movies. And then there's something like this that is just this juggernaut that never stops eating. Mm -hmm. And I love it. Chris, how about internationally? What did this film take in internationally? Or what has it taken in internationally? Including domestically? Uh, No. This is just internationally.
2: Internationally, um, I'd say 190 million.
0: Okay. And Pat?
1: I go 220.
0: Okay, good. So I'm not sure if that was an intentional mistake or not, but uh, you're both wrong. So the answer is $304 million collected internationally, which wow. is actually Amazing. big. Amazing.
3: Yeah. Something yeah, that, something
0: that we've seen over time in, in regard to movies in general is that now very often movies are actually introduced internationally first and right. then they come here. That was not the case back then at all. Right. And while there there is a huge take for a total of $793 million totally, guys want to guess on the budget? Back then...
2: Mm, I'll go eighteen million. Eighteen million for Chris, okay, and Pat. I was gonna say like twelve million.
0: Twelve million. All right, Pat's over, and Chris is not accurate either. The answer is ten million dollars.
2: Yeah, yes. It's cheap,
0: which is incredibly cheap. Oh yeah, uh, e- even back then for oh, for yeah. what is delivered here, that's an incredibly inexpensive film, which
2: typically means a sequel. But guess what? True. Yeah, we didn't get one. He would, that would have ruined it. I think it would have ruined it. You know, I think Steven Spielberg has a knack for creating something. It's a it's a unique creation. And I think sometimes he looks at it and he goes, no, nah, I'm not going to try to recreate it. I'll give you something new. Yeah.
0: Uh, there's some more thought on sequels uh, later on, but that's actually where we ask you guys, what do you guys think of these numbers we're talking about here? How does that impact you? And Actually, the big question I have for everyone out there. I don't actually remember what the ticket cost was, so maybe you guys can tell me what that is. If you can remember, make sure to hit us up either via the social media that you can find via the uh, show notes over at whatcopswatch.com. Uh, otherwise, you can check out our website at com, fill out the quick web form, and tell us how much you remember paying to go and see E.T. 1982. We're
2: going to have to ask Pat's mom.
0: Oh, Yeah. Or grandma, I guess. Grandma,
2: yeah, grandma. grandma uh, or we
1: probably mom. can't do that unless we're using a Ouija board. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now nah, it's a different film. Sorry. Okay. Yeah,
4: definitely. E. T.
0: The good. My goodness. I'm not entirely sure we've got a six hour window for a podcast today, but I sure wish we did because good grief, there's a bunch of good inside this film. Let's jump in. What kind of movie was this? Pat, I'll have you start.
1: I think it was just your typical 80s kids movie to where you have a... Even though it's mainly about Elliot and E.T., you still have that group of kids. Right. You know, that are kind of long for the ride. Mm -hmm. When you have your kids on bikes, you have your Dungeons and Dragons game playing. I mean, it's rounded up. It's just your typical 80s 80s kids movie, I think. And uh, Chris, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's right in our wheelhouse of the culture that we grew up in. Right in our... So, you know, I think that we have an age span here of... Pat was 10, I think I was maybe 14, you were 12. Mm-hmm. It's encapsulating that age range to a T because it's everything that we did. Like you said, I rode my bike to the theater. We got the Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, that was our era. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got, uh, right, you had your pocket full of quarters so All you could it. stop by and play the video games, you know, at <laughs> the gas station, wherever it was, right, And the arcade. Yeah, it was It was designed for our era, And I think that's why we're talking about it now.
0: Yeah. Again, this is a nostalgia bomb of every single level you can imagine of 80s kid. I think when I think of this movie and what kind of movie it is, well, you got to lean into science fiction heavily because we're talking about an alien, right? Wrong. This is a kid's movie. The level of fear that is issued because of, in particular, what are considered law enforcement officials is also why I'm glad you guys are here, One of the primary things that happens inside of What Cops Watch episodes is we want to put a human face on the people behind the badge. All the people, every single one of them, whether they had flashlights or guns in their hands inside of this film, depending on which one you watched, they're just people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's one of the pieces that I appreciate over time that they have reverted back to not changing out that the flashlights are now gone inside of the one that Spielberg wants you to watch. And it's not because I want there to be more fear inside of children. I just want them to understand that there's some dire stuff going on here that can't be explained, that is ultra strange, and the community needs to be protected. Right. And that's what cops do.
4: Two guys.
0: E.T. Authority and keys arrive. This is another thing that Spielberg is a master of where he'll take these little things that are character traits that have nothing to do with the name of the character or a piece inside the storytelling, except that it instantly solicits feelings. And again, this is another masterful job where the only thing that you see on this dude for over an hour is the jingling keys and hands on hips. That's it. But the potent power that is provided by this character, I mean, it's ultimate you instantly feel the impact of somebody that has this key ring
1: on them. Right. Yeah, you know, the key man, you call him key man, the key man's probably not going to be a good guy. Right. That's what you're assuming, right? Yeah. Because, you know, he's always around the corner or he's the one looking for E.T. the whole movie, so. Yeah, that, I mean, that's how, they,
2: and that's how they paint him early on. I mean, they establish that early on. And maybe was it a trend back then, Mike? You think in the eighties to have this kind of conspiracy theory, the government coming in, the secret no question. cover up. Absolutely. I mean, that was just a that was just an eighties theme. Yeah. Well and yeah. to work that in there, you think you're going a certain direction and that's how Spielberg does it, and then yeah. he, he he brings in this whole other plot. Well, not only
0: that, but he's absolutely leaning into hey aliens, and so instant conspiracy theory. Right. There's even a couple of kids inside of the inside of the thing that play on that, mm-hmm. where even kids back then knew oh aliens, blah blah blah. Right. And yeah, but there is one. <laughs> and that's the the sweet ironical part of the ice cream that Steven Spielberg serves to people right is where you can kind of laugh at it but um, excuse me there's an alien right right
2: <laughs> let's let's do some stereotyping of the alien that we had in the 80s and so on and so forth and then he reverses it
0: yeah I, and I love that I love that when he does that about just about anything that he's done in his films because it instantly spins the culture back on itself and I, I, I you have to cackle
4: right two guys.
0: E.T. Remembering Dungeons and Dragons. For those that aren't familiar with the what I would consider real concept of Dungeons and Dragons. Right. There was a time where you would sit in front of pieces of paper with a bag of dice that each had its own specific different shape. right? And characters would be created and documented on the pieces of paper. And then, especially at the beginning, there would be a dungeon master... that would conjure a story and lead the generated characters through a series of events and goings-on that then instantly lead to a culmination of either story or improving skill set or collecting treasure or whatever the people were interested in doing. And what I find wonderful about that, and why I wanted to make sure we talk about it, especially with Pat here, is that that's exactly what I'm doing inside of the training protocols for your crisis negotiators. I am painting the environment for them because all they have is the... And stop me if I'm spoiling anything. I don't think that I am. No, no. There are a series of data briefs that I get as the role player Mm -hmm. that put us into a situation. And what is given to the team that I interact with is a series of other details, not all of which are revealed. And so it's almost like this cat and mouse game of what can they divulge and find out by either asking me questions or interacting or bringing in resources or managing emotions or, uh, just like Pat said, trying to slow things down where uh, usually there's a whole bunch of manic that's inside of crisis negotiation. And when that happens, you have to slow it down and then start dissecting it, but without the person that you're dissecting knowing that it's being dissected. Right. I love conjuring that. And I got to tell you, a lot of that skill set was developed right here in Dungeons and Dragons.
2: Yeah. And let's dive into that a little bit too when we go back i mean maybe kids these days don't realize every rpg that you play these days mm-hmm. every game video game that it dungeons and dragons was the basis yeah. was the formation of yeah. that i mean no that, that was cr- that was created you know even you're talking about your hit points and armor class and all of that. And we had no computers to do it Zero. on.
0: Zero. Nothing. The the only thing you had was a series of manual resource books that were the essentially the, the law.
2: And what did you have to do? You had to add, you had to subtract, you had to read, you had to be creative. Mm-hmm. It, there was a lot of good stuff mm-hmm. that went into that game. In fact, I remember in middle school, and this was a private middle school, Catholic school, mm-hmm. they during study hall they allowed us to play it because they were like "Hey, there's all these good things you're reading you're adding you're subtracting you're keeping track of charts Mm -hmm. and it's creative thought process and it it worked. Now I'm, I remember. I don't know if you guys remember, but I remember it got at one point in time it got a bad name. They had. I remember the older kids; these were like the college kids. They had a few that went out and acted it out, and somebody got hurt, and yeah, and then they kind of vilified it for a little bit. Yeah, uh, but it always came back around. You know, once it came back around, it was the basis and the formation of many, many, many other games to come.
0: Yeah, I, I can remember when I first remember hearing the word LARP, L A R P. Mm-hmm. And the difference was that when I was, I think, 11 was the first time I was out in a forest uh-huh. with people wandering around in makeshift costumes. Uh-huh. It wasn't called LARPing, though. We were just playing D&D for real.
2: Right, right. right.
0: And the, the incidents that you're talking about where it went off the rails, well, that's uh-huh. where that started, where right. not only was it sitting in front of dice and paper, Right. It was then extended to a real place where things were happening and people lost hold of reality. Right. And you're absolutely right. There was a giant break of whether or not it was okay to even talk about it anymore. Right. And but it's come not only has it come back around, I think it's come back around in spades where people now not only wonder what it is, but are totally comfortable splashing it under the children.
3: Oh, because I Because
0: yeah. not only is it creative thinking, this is this kind of goes back to what Pat does for a living, which is it's the task management of life. Mm-hmm. And there are a, a variety of things you can say about task management and things that happen to you in your life. And it probably doesn't involve a succubus or right. a green dragon. Right. right. But I'll tell you, those things are dire and you have to make decisions. Right. And then based on die play and what other people say and do, you have to then react and do things. And that instantly allows you to think quick on your feet. And I, I love improvisational thought. I think it's I think it's one of the things that's missing inside of podcasting, frankly where it's great to hear people that have a skill set and talk but somewhere there's also got to be some improvisational juking that right. happens inside a conversation and I think I think you would get tons of it if you're ever interested in doing something like Dungeons and Dragons because it's where I got mine there's no question.
2: Well and you had to work as a team. You know, I mm-hmm. see that I even see that when I look at the uh, younger generation that gets online and plays these video games which were based on that concept. Yeah. You won't get through some of these things unless you work as a team, so yeah. I mean, it. The, a lot of the concepts and the and the the thought processes are good, you know. Like everything, there's things can go off the rails if mm-hmm. it's if there's if there's bad content that's added yeah. or whatnot, it can lead you down the wrong path. But yeah. uh, that was part of my culture, part of my childhood. And-
0: yeah, this kind of spills into resource management too, which when you yeah. look at especially uh, video game basis stuff. It is instant resource management. In fact, sure. I, I would say that that often trumps a lot of the creativity part that happens nowadays. Yeah. The reason I got out of playing lots and lots of competitive video gaming is because I got sick of having my ass kicked by a six-year-old.
2: Right. Well, they, they have a yeah. lot more has, time
0: to practice. Right. Well, who has memorized every single <laughs> right. resource tree yeah. before yeah. I even know what they are. Yeah. And so when it takes 20 minutes for somebody to trump me and I've got nothing and I'm burning in flames... Mm-hmm and the other person has accumulated not only all of the wealth that I had over the course of six months. Mm-hmm. That instantly sours my interest in the game. And th- that's really what was great, is that there was actually turns based in Dungeons yeah. & Dragons, right. where you actually had it. Where y- There were even moments inside of later gaming that we did that was science fiction-based, where you'd actually be holding something that denoted it was your turn. Right. And then when your turn was over, you'd pass it off to somebody else. Right. That's really, really effective. What I also saw, too, was... That has spilled into counseling, in particular family counseling, when mm-hmm. there's a series of people oh, yeah. in a circle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know when that transition or if yeah. or how that transition happened, but I can tell you, I was doing that as a role game player mm-hmm. back in the day, and it was adopted inside of the the realm of consultation and counseling, which I love because having that it's your turn thing is a big deal, especially when you got a lot to say. Right. Well,
2: and that face to face interaction too—that we're losing a lot of that these days. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I think with it goes. The communication
4: skills: totally, totally
2: uh, totally. e.
0: The call of coyotes and submersion. This is where we start leaning into who Spielberg is and what he does inside of every feature film. Somewhere inside of every perspective review that involves Steven Spielberg, we're going to be talking about submersion. And the reason I have taken the time to use the word submersion with Steven Spielberg is because I'm not kidding. He grabs you by the top of the head if you got hair and dunks you into whatever situation is going on, and you are there. If it's alien invasion inside of War of the Worlds, you are there. If it's you inside of a broken family and you're playing Dungeons & Dragons, you are there. If it's your community being visited by giant spaceships atop a geometric form that means something, you are there.
2: Well, and press pause on that for just a minute, Mike. How does he do that? And when we start breaking that down, we talk about how he does that. These are science fiction environments, but he can take a piece of what typically happens, a circumstance that you have been in, that you can relate to, that you have been in with your family or your friends or whatnot, and he inserts that in there, Yeah. and it's the real piece where you go, oh, wait a minute, I've done that. Mm-hmm. I've been there. And that's how he... I think that's how he accomplishes that. Yeah. It's somewhere brilliant.
0: inside of the I, I even think it's the ha funny of it all being called touchstone pictures at one point where every single bit of what he's creating all has touchstone to oh, so yeah. somebody's life somewhere. Right. And I love it. I, I love all of it. Uh, again, when you start sp- spinning into incredibly dramatic presentations like Schindler's List.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, like, show me the person that's not somehow touched by anything that happens inside of Schindler's List. Right, right. And the gamut of feature films that he provides, Jaws, my God. Right. There are so many things that happen that are these moments where you are not only glad you are not there. Right but that you can't quite believe what you're seeing. But you've been to the beach. Right.
2: You've been to the water. Right. And when you it go back could, to the water, you, wo- to you. you wonder, right? Yeah,
0: right. Well, right. even that, the, yeah. problem, uh, that's, that's, the sweet irony of us that's talking where about- the emotion. Yeah. yeah. The sweet yeah. irony of us talking about JAWS, because we're in the midst of recording the JAWS Perspective Review actually right now. We've captured the first probably 75% of it. In that one, it, it's a, if the perfect sample is, wow, hey, look, I'm a nine-year-old walking into the local pool. And I sure hope a shark doesn't come and bite my ass to death. Right. Well, wait a minute. There can't be sharks in the pool. Right? But it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't make any difference. Right. And it's because it's of water. what Spielberg That's has right. created. Right.
4: Two guys. Two guys. E.T.
0: The shed visuals and atmosphere. There's one scene that instantly perks up the hairs on the back of Mike's head right now. Just thinking about it right now, the hairs are standing up in the back of my head. And it is this almost horror shot in Elliot's backyard where there's just this dim yellow light that's pointing toward the shed door with him standing in silhouette. And for all intents and purposes, it's a shot out of a horror film. And this whole front end of being introduced to the extraterrestrial inside of this film spins very much so into the horror genre where it's preying upon fear, especially for kids. At least for me, I I never had really a backyard. The one backyard I remember was a huge backyard with like a barn and a horse in it. But I only lived there for like a year. And then the rest of my time was in apartments most of the time. So I never had a backyard. So when you think about backyard, I'm thinking it is this creepy ass place where things go on that you're not quite sure you want a piece of. And this helped exemplify that uh, without question. Yeah. It, it, it's instantly creep fest.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: And, and I'm not sure what's going on. I always wonder if they reuse the shed because it always looks like the same creepy place yeah, when they right. go to the go to horror oh, movie, I, right? Well,
0: not only that, I think that that's a piece of uh, Spielberg splash damage inside of any feature film that utilizes something that looks like this. Mm-hmm. They're going to go, hey, you guys remember that? Remember when Elliot's in the backyard with the shed? Remember that? Right, yeah. Well, and all, all they got to do is go look at it and then make that with yep. whatever it is they're using. Right. Break
2: out the old shed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the shed set. But it's uh, it's terrifying, but instantly perks up the whole curiosity thing. And again, it's a it's a it's a skill set that Spielberg is a master of, and has never not them.
4: Two guys talking.
0: E.T. A broken family, and no one believing you. I've talked a little bit about broken family inside of this feature film, and again, it's uh, this is another of those wheelhouse movies that instantly impacts me because. Seeing a family on the big silver screen that also has a father that has not only left, but instantly has other interests in regard to somebody that is not the mother. I was in the wheelhouse. We're we're five years after my dad left when I was seven. And this was a very familiar territory here. It's also something I bring up when somebody goes, hey, have you ever seen E.T.? And I always say, oh, you mean the movie about the broken family? And they'll go, What? And what you have to realize is that when you look at the snapshot of the family going on here, there's a whole lot of broken. Oh yeah, sure. That's inside this family. Sure. And uh, it's it's where uh, something like this is where I would love to bring in a counselor somehow to talk about the aspects of what's showcased in films like this. Mm-hmm. I just it's it's the teeter totter of how entertaining do we want to be, right? And how dashing of real life do we want to become also inside of right. the the reviews? But there's no question there is a huge component of a broken family, and then somehow this element from outer space literally coming and helping to, to change some of what's going on in their lives. Right. E.T. doesn't fix everything inside of this film. Right. But what it does do is E.T. is able to insert a new emotion that instantly gives everyone in the film, regardless of who it is that is touched by what E.T. is doing, a completely different perspective of what's going on. Right. And if there was a big takeaway out of this film, that's the takeaway I would I would want to make sure I am always exemplifying to people.
2: Right. Yeah, and I think that it, you know, I think that it realigns the mission. It gives uh it, it gives the family uh direction and purpose and uh those things that uh that are good when there's loss.
1: Well, I think it hit on a lot of things if you remember a lot of the 80s stuff. Most of the time, you didn't see that aspect of the broken family. Totally you know, agree. It was, it was always that happy family. You had everybody ate, you know, dinner at the table and all this. And then here you got this family where dad's in Mexico for all they think, you know. So, just an interesting concept to, to kind of throw it out there.
0: Yeah, I think that's also. We absolutely are not a politically leaning program, but this is the piece of Spielberg I've always loved.
2: Well, it's realistic.
0: Not only that, it's outside the box. There's every reason for Spielberg to paint yet another happy family in yet another place inside of yet another scenario that everybody can watch and smile Mm -hmm. on. And you don't get that. You get something that is tangible.
2: But fast forward it to 2022 when it may be, I mean, let's look at it today. When we look at films today, they do paint the family like that because it's it's prevalent. It's Mm -hmm. not something that we don't talk about anymore. Yeah. And contrast that with... You know, back then in, what, 82? You're right. They didn't talk about it, but he was bold enough to step out.
0: Yeah, trailblazer. No no question.
2: So how would he do it today? You know, yeah. I don't know.
4: Yeah. Two guys. E.T. The Call at 1916.
0: At 19 minutes and 16 seconds, you're going to hear something for the very first time that is easily one of the most emotionally impactful moments inside of any feature film for me. And it's something that John Williams calls The Call. I'll insert it here. These short tones are an instant tone change Every single time I hear them. Whether I hear them in my head humming or whether I hear them inside the lucid tones inside of any of the soundtracks from this feature film, they are instantly impactful and I instantly think of this very first 19 minute and 16 second moment. The great part is that I get to enjoy them at least 26 more times inside this film. <laughs> Right. There's nothing like this, this soundtrack and this, these tiny little bits are showcased inside of an element that we're going to link up on YouTube that is just wonderful. And it's a video you're going to watch and it's Steven Spielberg and John Williams sitting at a piano. And it is one of the, it's magic. It's, it's what I have always appreciated about the behind the scenes, DVD commentary trackness of everything that is feature films. Mm -hmm. Because you get to see things happen. You listen to what could have been, and then you suddenly hear what has become. It's wonderful. Uh, Pat and I were talking in prelude to this episode about the impact of John Williams, and uh, in particular his Star Wars stuffs.
3: Right. Mm -hmm.
0: And I'm not going to take anything away from Star Wars, especially the first couple of films. But this soundtrack and this score is just, it's bananas level
2: Emotion for me. sure. Well, he and he can switch to any flavor. I yeah. mean, it's if it's Pirates of the Caribbean, if it's uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? I mean, it. He's he just strums up the the masterpiece.
1: Well, and what Mike didn't talk about is my. I was a little disappointed when I saw John Williams. I'm gonna vault um, the desk. It's true. And yeah, I, I mean, because I think just going back to the Star Wars is the multitude of different themes or songs and to me this one just seemed like you had the one big one and then that was kind of all you had Mm -hmm. so i was a little i was a little disappointed and that's just from looking back you know i mean i'm sure as a kid i probably loved it but now me i was i just expect a little bit more so
0: interesting what i'm hoping is that you're going to see this video that is the the culmination of them coming up with with what was presented here Uh, the other thing too is uh, inside of spielberg films and george lucas is also a master of this raiders is just all-time high of what I call transitional highs. Yeah. When I talk about transitions, I'm talking about not just physical characters moving from one place to another, but scene transition. Right. And both of them are just bananas. And very often it's because of the skill set of John Williams outright.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, they, I think that... More than anything, see if you agree or not, I think that more than anything, the music, his music, defines that film. If you're wherever, elevator, passing through a department store, in a theme park, you hear that song, instantly you think of that film.
1: Yeah, and there's no question. Right, and, no I, question. and I do give kudos to that because you hear that one score and you automatically know that's E.T. You know, a lot of people may not even seen the movie but just know from the music, oh, that's E.T. Yeah, it is, the, it is the
2: defining identity of that movie, just in my opinion.
0: Uh, and I think defining identity is an excellent, an excellent phrase for this entire set of music.
4: Two guys, two,
0: E.T. Falling asleep outside. Do you guys remember falling asleep outside? Oh, yeah, yeah all the time. Yeah. Define it for me, Pat.
1: Well, unlike you, I actually grew up in a rural area, and we had a huge backyard. Mm. I want to say two and a half, three acres, and then after that was we were surrounded by woods. Oh wow! So it was all woods. Uh, we did we always did the camping out, uh, watching the stars thing. So that was normal everyday occurrence almost for mm. us. We'd hang out till it got dark, and then sometimes we just sleep in the dark with the fire going. So wow,
2: that's cool, Chris. Yeah, and the same. I didn't. I wasn't really in a, a rural area, but a lot of you know outdoors, hunting, fishing. I remember being in Colorado with my dad on a uh, overnight camp out in the mountains rode horses up to the campsite and that high up you can see like thousands and thousands of stars the 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 sky is just absolutely clear a little bit brisk and it it's just I don't know it's just undescribable. you have to you have to actually be there and sleep outside and it was it's just a great experience
0: interesting i i uh i didn't get to camp formally uh there was a camping trip to lake Winnebago that i remember mm-hmm. but it's where my parents had at the time they had a, a sleeper camper mm-hmm. you know the pop-up sleeper camper yep so there was no sleeping outside there was no tent experience i, I didn't have any of that until i was 15 mm-hmm and uh, the, at the 15 point, it was then with the Explorer program that mm-hmm. back then was, the, was essentially co-ed Boy Scouts, right. which, was, <laughs> which was a ton of fun in itself. But I didn't have anything like that at all. And I, I've never actually, hey, look, there's nothing above us and I'm sleeping. Never had that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I recently visited Wyoming. We went to Devil's Tower, which is uh, another perspective review we're going to do with Close Encounters. And it was magical. But my wife and I took the time. At 2.45 in the morning to just go out and stare up at the sky. hmm And it's transformative. Right. It really is. Yep. Uh, in particular where we were, nine miles outside of Devil's Tower, where there's just nothing.
2: You can see everything. And it's- for, the,
0: for those that have not done that and only seen maybe photographs of what you see, mm-hmm. you really do need to take time and see that before you die. I agree. Because it's, I don't have words to describe it. I can try because I can talk. But you really do need to see it with your own eyes. It's it's just it's amazing.
4: Two guys.
0: E.T. E. Learning about Reese's Pieces. Pat, let the hatred train begin.
1: Yeah, I can't stand Reese's Pieces. I'm pretty sure my hatred of Reese's Pieces was due to this <laughs> film. Because, you know, obviously everybody, E.T. loves them, right? So we had to go out and get the Reese's Pieces. And for some reason, I just don't like them. Um, I love Reese's peanut butter cups. I love M&M's, but yeah, give me a Reese's Pieces. No, I'm not going to have any. Like.
0: <laughs> Again, to give you guys some insight into the wonder of these perspective reviews, I'm sitting here gnawing on a chicken sandwich and Pat walks in to sit down and record today. And he slaps down a series of sweets on the table and he goes, let me explain my hatred of Reese's Pieces. And he jiggles a, a bag of peanut M&M's in my face right
1: i think we had a lot better play if they would have used peanut m&ms <laughs> in the, instead of the reese's pieces
2: yeah uh chris your your take on uh, reese's pieces
1: by you know i'm not a
2: i'm not as much of a hater as uh as pat is over <laughs> here pieces of the hater. reese's pieces um you know i'll eat them they're not a peanut butter cup you know i mean they don't taste as good but uh right you know i'll, I'll still eat them but uh you know what i think that if uh they do a remake of, on this movie that we have a lot more variety of a lot of other candy that we can go with that's much higher quality than Reese's pieces I don't know are you uh, are you sold
0: uh, Dude I am I am so in they don't make bags of Reese's pieces big enough to satiate the Wilkerson need for Reese's pieces are you kidding me um, I, I love them. And mm-hmm. it wasn't just because of this film, it's because they're super tasty. They're not real peanut butter. No, I just, I I, I'm reasonably know, certain that, that Lieutenant Bad has been abducted and replaced. Yeah, that yeah. might be. I'm pretty sure.
1: Well that might be. I'll just go out and taste them. That's all you gotta do.
0: <laughs> and that's where we ask you guys, our defining discerning audience, exactly what the hell's going on with Reese's pieces. Thumbs up or thumbs down. I'm actually gonna put a poll over on our website over <laughs> at two guys because we this needs to be settled. Let's see the results. And uh, we're going to find out exactly what's going on here because, of course, these are cops and they're checking out what's going on with Reese's Pieces.
4: Two guys. Do
0: E.T. The first tether of communication. Mirroring. Again, the sweet irony of doing perspective reviews is that when I watched this several months ago to sit down and make the essentially the skeleton, the outline for this, for this program, I was thinking of something completely different. However, this week they started painting my house, and those that are painting my house do not speak English. Huh. And so, guess what's happening in regard to communication at my house being painted? And the answer is lots of mirroring, because that's the first line of communication where you're going to try and explain to something to somebody something, and they're going to do and. Copy what you're doing to try and mm-hmm. discern what it is you're trying to make out.
2: Well, and just for clarification, so our audience knows too. Mike is a uh, sign language expert, so I assume nobody painting the house knew any kind of sign language, you couldn't communicate through those methods, right? You know, so I, I
0: hadn't actually thought of that. The only thing I thought about was like my uh, my wife walked up and started signing to me. Yeah, my wife is deaf. For those that don't know, and I almost was going to try and tell them I couldn't remember what the word for wife was. Yeah. So I grabbed Google and I go. You can hit just the, the regular microphone button. You hit and the regular microphone button. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I go, yeah. and I go. what is my wife is deaf in Spanish? And Google will go, you need to say, and then it will actually say what you need to say. And so I did that, and I got the and whole it nodding thing, and okay. it's perfect. It's great. It, 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 great. It, it, it's an in-between that worked out perfectly. But that mirroring piece that you see inside of what's going on inside of ET, yeah. Yeah. it's real. sure and again it lends back to what Spielberg understands as a real piece of communication the difference is that hey look at the kid hey look at the alien right and again it's taking that piece of real life communication and experience and splash damaging it with this completely literally out of this world thing and that's the magic of Spielberg
2: well and building up that foundation for the relationship and the bond right I mean that's where it's going it was great
0: it was amazing Two guys, E.T. Quiet storytelling moments, The Link, and Slumber. This is another wonderful pace thing that Chris and I talk about inside of just about everything that we talk about, where even if the story is thin, even if the characters are thin, even if the overall presentation of whatever's going on is thin, pace will out. It's almost this magic salve.
2: Timing can be everything.
0: That will save everything instead of storytelling. Right. And not surprisingly, this feature film is another total dedication showcase of the magic and skill set of director Steven Spielberg's ability to tell stories and the pace ability. There is no place inside of this where you go, man, you know, I had my, I had my fist resting on the side of my face and I was so bored. Right. It doesn't happen inside this film ever. Right. Right. And it's not because of short attention span. It's not because it's way over your head and you don't understand it. It's because it's all engaging. Right. The quiet moments that are used here are used as quiet moments. They're not used as, and now nothing's happening. Right. And that's the difference between telling a masterful story and shoving a bunch of formulated elements into a feature film. The other part I love here is that there is this link that is generated between Elliot And E.T. at this moment inside the story. And then he goes to sleep. And you wonder what's going to happen. It instantly raises the question because the next scene, he wakes up. And it's a completely different time of day and not sure exactly what happened. And that's the wonder of, like, what would happen if you met an alien in the middle of the night? And then you woke up and you didn't know exactly what was going on. Was it a dream? Right. Did you imagine all of it? Right. Well, we don't actually know. And that is what propels the rest of the story.
2: Right, and I think that that is, I don't know, I think that's Steven Spielberg's flair. I mean, I think that he leaves that, he leaves that open to, for you to wonder, because then he can go in any direction with the continuation of the story.
4: Two guys talking. E.T.
0: Cheating the thermometer and staying home. Pat, why don't you lead this one? We talked
1: yeah, about it. Yeah, we kind of discussed this. Um, this is I think maybe where I learned this from. It doesn't work. I tried it. I think my temperature was like 130 or 140. Um so yeah, don't don't try it at home, kids. You're not gonna get out of school that way. There's other ways to go about it, but yeah, that that just didn't work out very well for me.
2: Well, right. If you use a lighter, it'll actually blow the thermometer up and you'll have mercury all over the place, which is <laughs> Which well, is also poisonous, yeah. It
1: I, I, yeah. I only
0: tried something like this and I used a heating pad.
2: That was a little smarter. Yeah, okay. but
0: my mom thought my head was going to blow off my shoulders, so not so awesome. Because now she's going to stay home from work to make she's sure rush I'm, you okay. to the ER. yeah, I'm Not
1: going to die, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. And uh, so no, I-, I vote for skipping the whole <laughs> cheating the thermometer and staying home thing. Yeah.
2: Mike Wilkerson finds himself in a in a <laughs> bathtub full of ice right, because yeah. his temperature's 150.
4: Right. Two guys, two, three, E-T.
0: Another series of product placement. Coke. And Star
4: Wars,
1: definitely notice the Star Wars as Elliot is, you know, basically talking ET. ET's grabbing some of his figures, and he basically starts describing. And what I thought thought was really ironic it wasn't the ones you you know you wouldn't think, you know, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Princess Leia. No, it was the off range characters: Hammerhead, Snaggletooth, uh, Boba Fett, Lando. Obviously, Boba Fett's more popular now, but back then nobody really totally. knew Boba yeah. Fett, right? Yeah, yeah. totally. Agree. So it's kind of you know the the lesser known characters, which kind of made it even more interesting. I had those characters. Did you have a hammerhead? I,
0: I still have them all. Oh yeah. yeah, I got them in my Darth Vader, my Darth Vader collector case. I still okay. have
1: it. That was the can, basically it was almost like the cantina scene is what he Greedo. Right. It was Greedo was another one. Yeah, so who shot yeah. first, Pat? It was Han Solo. Okay, okay. Just wanted to clarify. that. Are you sure on that? Absolutely.
2: Okay, it was. Hey, it was self defense. He should have shot first. <laughs> It's our cop <laughs> perspective, right. I'm just saying. He,
1: he, he about, used more force than was needed because he felt threatened. He so had overcome the force, yeah, he exactly. threatened his life.
0: It's, it's, it's also what was originally presented inside the feature film. Right. End of paragraph, period. Two
4: guys.
3: E.T.
0: The absolute power introduction. This was the only reason why I was sad that I did not have siblings. Because I would have loved to have been able to tell somebody, I have ultimate power over whatever it is that I want power over. Right. This was cool. And again, it's it's not having siblings. I don't have anything like this to, to lean on. I never leaned into one of my friends and said, hey, man, I've got ultimate power over this. I'm assuming that's a sibling thing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah.
2: Power and control.
1: Sure. And then, and then of course, you always had that little sister who ruins everything and just comes yeah. in and just blows the whole Right, you know, whole whole caboose by you know. Oh my God, it's an alien, you know. So right, that's yeah.
2: And then yeah, I mean, how how much do you have to bribe or not to tell, and you know, that's all that.
0: Yeah, I, I, and again, the uh, the family dynamic that's painted here is painted wonderfully, and uh, you don't get some giant expose on who the characters are and why they act the way they do. They're just presented well, and I miss that inside of storytelling. Nowadays, there's there seems to be this lean into. Well, we need to explain why Johnny or Susie is insert whatever whatever their Picadillo is, mm-hmm. and I don't think that that's actually necessary. No. I think if uh, it gets back to something else, Chris and I talk about a lot, which is just show it. Right, right. Just show it. Don't don't give us some giant exposition scene of why something.
2: Give me a natural and realistic progression. Right. I mean, and unfold it. Realistically and naturally, and I think that's what they they kind of nailed down with the whole family dynamic here. Yeah. yeah, I
1: mean it's that whole scene itself. You know, they paint Big Brother. He's coming home from football practice, has his football pads on, takes that off. You know, and he does all this stuff. And again, little sister just wanders all in. You know, and, and it was <laughs> screams her head off.
0: Right, yeah. And that scream is uh, it, it, it's jubilation instant moment from uh, from Juba Moore. Right, and uh, it, it's something I'm super appreciative of Drew for her contribution in this film for that it's, it's magical. It's instantly transportative. That whole scene is great. Uh, (laughs) Mike coming in and literally going, (laughs) what the hell is that?
3: Right. right, (laughs) All of it.
0: You just, the the timing is perfect. The, the conversation between the three of them as people that live inside the house is perfect. And then Elliot trying to spill the moment on now. Okay. I have ultimate power. Right. And it just, it's a, it's a tilt moment for what is common sense with something that's totally non-commonsensical. I love it. Two guys talking
4: E.T.
0: The Flower, Home, and the Men Hunting E.T. This, again, links to the link that we're going to talk about probably later on inside the goods, but then also in the bads. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also refers to some wonderfully done storytelling because in addition to having the flower that is kind of the status bar, to go back to video gameness,
3: mm-hmm.
0: of what's going on with E.T., you also have some incredibly quick-hitting moments that showcase that the men are hunting E.T., period. Right. Again, it's not this long, drawn-out thing that needs maps and showcases and all kinds of four- and five-minute pieces of dialogue from three and four different people. It's less than a minute that this is showcased, and you know exactly what's going on. Instantly.
2: It's a piece that plays into the pace, though. That's a way to increase or decrease the pace. And if there's urgency, it continues the story yeah. forward at yeah. the pace that Spielberg
1: wants. Yeah, and it's not rushed. It's just perfectly fit into where all of a sudden now the black fans show up. Or this, you know, it's, so it's, like you said, it's just that pace. where it, Yeah.
0: And, and, it, and it's subtle. And when I say it's subtle, it's not hidden. There is something going on that doesn't quite look normal. And you can see it but it's not jarring. There's, there's nothing inside of this movie that instantly becomes jarring until it needs to be jarring. Right. And I miss that. I miss that in modern day storytelling.
4: Two guys. E.T. E. The gauntlet of the bus stop.
0: I have a million bus stop stories, not only of my own. Just for some uh, some critical reference, Chris, did you take the bus to school? I did,
2: Early on, I had moved from, I started out as a kid in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was born in Cleveland, moved to Columbus, started school in Columbus, then moved to Indianapolis for like a year, mm-hmm. then moved to St. Louis. So I was all over the place, and it was hit and miss. So When I was in public school, yeah, I was on the bus, then I was in private school, I was in a carpool. So, it, So yeah, I've had both experiences, which are both unique and different experiences.
1: Yeah. Pat? I rode the bus the whole time until obviously we got our driver's license, but didn't have the bus stop because we were so rural. I basically stood there by myself and got on the bus, but mm-hmm. then the whole bus ride itself was very long. Mm-hmm. A lot And of... is that
0: because you were rural in general? Is oh, that yeah, the whole... yeah. Okay.
1: And we, it took forever to get to and from school. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, but it was one of those things where it was the chaotic bus ride, you know, that pretty much any, any 80s movies pretty much has it in there, so.
0: I, on the other hand, rode the bus forever, I never didn't ride the bus inside of my scholastic activity. And so there was always some of something that went on here across the board. It also is what made it very difficult to put my daughter on a bus, especially in modern day scholastic activity. And I, Mm -hmm. I unfortunately now understand why so many parents just go and pick and shuttle their kids to and from school. Oh yeah. And it's a completely different atmosphere than back then where it wasn't nearly as rough and tumble. Mm Mm-hmm. But it has also led to what I called, in a variety of different meetings with the powers at school, the gladiator arena. Sure. Because it is. Oh, yeah. And it's real.
1: Definitely a hierarchy on the bus.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> no question. And uh, that's actually where we ask you guys, what was your guys' experience while you were shuttling to and from on the bus? Or for those of you that are younger, you likely were also shuttled uh, to and from school. We want to hear from you. Go on over to our website over at whatcopswatch.com. Fill out the quick web form and tell us what you experienced on the bus stop.
4: Two guys.
0: E.T. Mom hearing trouble, but only finding stuffed animals. It's a wonderfully cute moment where you can instantly pan across an entire array of stuff inside of a child's closet. And frankly, because mom's too busy dealing with life, she wouldn't even think twice. About looking directly into the face of an alien creature, with a hat on. Right, right. And again, the levity inside of this is wonderfully, wonderfully sprinkled in in so many different places, and it helps to provide the the real roller coaster moments inside of the very painful emotional pieces that are inside this film too.
2: Yeah, I think the pivot. You know, the pivot from the alien, as you talked about the uh, the moment with the shack and the, the scare scene and and so forth, to the pivot to it's not a threat. It's, it's, it's merely a stuffed animal, merely a toy. I mean, I think that that blend, that he can pivot back and forth, just makes the movie. I mean, it makes it more interesting. I think that that rides that emotion, like you said. Two guys. E.T.
0: A question of dissection. All right, so of the three of us, who was dissecting pigs? Yep. I believe so yeah Yep. But I, how about was, dissecting frogs i Throgs. was gonna go
1: back to the frog but i do not remember the frogs being alive and throwing the chloroform our, our frogs were dead when we yeah ours were again. too yeah, yeah. it smelled, smelled. remember they had all, yeah, this they had whole thing where they're dropping the little core chloroform little you know cotton ball in there and then screwing the lid on i'm like wow i mean and, and elliot's not that old it's like talk about yeah trauma. that i that what i don't heck. remember yeah. yeah
0: i have to be honest i don't I don't remember the chloroform moments. I remember being an interpreter, though, and I remember the chloroform moments. So let's see, that was 95? Mm-hmm. So I was 25. So I, I don't know when that became like, hmm. got to be kidding me. We can't let them kill the frogs in front of them. Yeah, I'm not crazy. sure when that was. Yeah, but. yeah, I
2: don't know. I mean, I'm going back to, let's see, I was uh, 14 when this movie came out. Mm-hmm. So I was well into that. I don't remember if we did, did. we did, was it high school? Was it middle school? I don't remember.
0: I don't remember it ever being middle school. I don't either. I remember doing something like this in biology. Biology in high high school. school, Right. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: I I wonder, I have to wonder if maybe it's just a matter of what perspective the schools are going to take. It was West Coast.
1: So they're always about (laughs) 20 years ahead of what we're doing here in the Midwest. So interesting. They could have been dissecting those frogs, you know, in kindergarten for all we know.
0: I have to think that back then maybe there was an option. So you can either have live frogs or you can acquire the ones that have already been. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah,
2: ours were packaged and whatever the chemical was right. that they were packaged in and they would open them up and then you would you would dissect them hmm.
0: interesting the bottom line is that i don't know the situations about dissection now like at all and that's great because we can ask the audience are you or your kids in school dissecting animals still let us know what you think go on over to Whatcapswatch.com. fill out the quick web form and tell us if you're dissecting something but more importantly what are you dissecting you guys E.T. E. Drinking and a clarification of the link. All right. Again, we're going to spill into a little bit of bad hatred, I'm certain, that we'll get to later. <laughs> but this is the, uh, the ultimate drinking moment where E.T. decides to imbibe at the house via the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. And instantly, inside of the biology experiment classroom, Elliot becomes drunk. And so, Pat, is this a clarification of the link, or what What do you yeah, not understand? Yeah, it,
1: it's more confusing, but we'll, we'll discuss this further in the, in the very bad <laughs> section. Well, I don't know
2: thing. if we can discuss in the bad section. If I th- you know, if I think it's a good thing, we have to discuss it in the good, right? Well,
1: uh, so I, We can discuss, so we discuss we just, the link yeah. here. Sure, we can have be a great.
2: battle Oof. between Pat and... <laughs> We'll just wait oh. till the bad well, so we can vent.
1: Well, here's the, other, here's the other thing you need to know. Since it was West Coast, you notice it was Coors beer. Had it been more Midwestern-y, we would have had oh, Budweiser. Budweiser. Yeah, absolutely. Budweiser products. Every, right. every, every absolutely. 80s Budweiser <laughs> movie, right?
2: That's really, that's really his bone of contention. It's just, a, it's just another thing to Now I
0: understand the product placement hatred. Right. Thank you so it, much, Pat. Coors.
4: Oh. Two guys. E.T. The parts of the
0: rescue plan are hatched. I love effective exposition, and as always, Spielberg is a master. The only thing that I think might just edge him out is maybe the original Back to the Future, and then the the subsequent the sequel, the second one is also I think probably on top of the heap in regard to exposition because there needs to be it needs to be there, but it's done wonderfully and moved through so quickly you don't actually know that you've been exposized, and uh, it, it's just it's it's a wonder. Of uh, storytelling here inside of this film, I love it. E.T. E.T.'s e. technical prowess—not bad for a ten-thousand-year-old botanist. How mm-hmm. about them apples, guys? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, he picked up the what was it? Is that was that the speaking spell? Speaking spell, yeah, right? Picked that right out, didn't he? Yeah. Although I think he didn't correctly spell the words. <laughs>
0: so I he, guess it's phonetics. Right. Let's let's yeah. hope anyway uh this was fun and uh, another another nod to real production design uh-huh. obviously there was some some later audio editing going on but what was great here is that you see all this functional real life stuff that is not some trick of cGI anything it's it's all actual practical stuff including ET right which is something we've not hit on here I don't actually remember actually oh yes i I do I do have a note here about it we'll we'll get to that more but that's the other piece of this is that Everything that's pulled off here is not only pulled off in camera, mm-hmm. but every single bit of it is believable. Right. A lot of this holds up. There's a couple of moments that you kind of wonder what's going on, but especially back then, you everybody was reeled in.
2: Well, and you don't... I found that with Spielberg, he doesn't have to... He knows when he has to explain something and when he doesn't, when he can just leave it open. And, uh, you know, that might be some of Pat's angst toward the link but it's what do you have to explain and what don't you have to explain
4: Two guys talking E-T.
0: oblivious busyhood of being an overworked parent i have to tell you guys that while i think i am a very attentive parent i totally understand busy mama
1: inside of this inside of this program I'm sure oh there were several instances where i was like <laughs> oh yeah i've seen the whole uh having the, the kid you know back the car out of the driveway which is abysmal and then um <laughs> going back to the drinking scene she leaves the the little girl who what is she five four maybe by herself at home i'll be right back hey just take care <laughs> of yourself
0: no, no worries here yeah there, there, there's a bunch of that here and um again as the kid that was left alone at seven
1: mm-hmm.
0: i'm not entirely sure that my behavior is modeled behavior <laughs> mm-hmm. or not, but I totally understand it, especially as a parent. Two
3: guys. E.T. E.
0: E.T. gets a makeover. Again, the, the juggling of jocularity to help lighten up mood, especially mm-hmm. as E.T. descends. Mm-hmm. It's so effective here. It instantly gives you those roller coaster rides of up and down that are totally, totally effective.
2: Well, and I, it's working at, you know, they, they build on the dysfunctional family, family dynamic, broken Mm -hmm. family. And they integrate E.T., they integrate the alien
1: into the family.
2: And it's just more perspective from family, the family integration.
1: Yeah. And and again, it's just a little sister. What's she going to do? She's going to take your G.I. Joe, put lipstick on him and, you know, dress him up in a dress, right? That's what happened to E.T. So, right? Right.
0: It's great. And uh, again, I love Drew Barrymore's portrayal here. Like, nothing odd's been done here. I mean, of course he looks great.
3: Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was great. Again, just a total nod to Drew Barrymore inside of this. There's a there's a dynamic that's talked about inside the commentary for this film, too, that leans specifically into the real nature of how this was played, mm-hmm. where the family was a family for the period of shooting the film. Sure. The other piece that I think now is probably a good time to talk about it, they didn't actually see the alien until everything else was shot. So it was shot as it was showcased inside the film. And so the first time that they're seeing the alien was the first time that they'd seen the alien. Mm
3: -hmm. Uh
0: And that's why you have these real realization moments captured on film. Uh And I love that they would take the time to do that because again, modern day filmmaking is not the place that that usually happens anymore. Typically there's a schedule of where shots need to be captured or scenes need to be captured inside of whatever vista. Uh And so it's just captured and then they all compile it in the edit. Going the extra mile to make sure that there's some realism here about shock and awe of, oh my God, there's an alien. Right. I love all that. I think it's terribly
4: effective.
0: The classic surveillance truck, then and now. This is wonderful because, again, it's that whole something in this picture is not quite right. Oh, it's the giant black truck center frame. And that's what was surveillance. That game has also completely changed, Pat.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not the just black van that just pulls up in the neighborhood anymore. There's so more in depth, you know, and I have drones and all these other devices you can use to where it's not just, we're going to pull up in this van, you know, or, oh, it was a little high tech for the 80s, too, though. They had this, whatever they could have was listening in to every house as they were driving down, which, hmm, didn't know that existed back then.
0: Yeah, the the sweet irony of talking about shotgun mics recently. For those that aren't familiar with shotgun mic technology, it's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. It's where you can be a very reasonable distance away in the form of yards away, and what you will hear is exactly what you're hearing out of my voice right now. Yeah. Right. Some scary shit, really is. They're incredibly expensive, they're not easy to acquire, and also take care of because they're also very touchy mics. Mm -hmm. But they are wonderful devices. And obviously something like that was being essentially showcased inside of that scene. But what has happened now with the explosion of technology since 1982, 40 years now later, is just mind boggling. And again, talking about what was and what is, the game has completely changed.
2: They would have just tapped into that. Amazon Echo and listen to everything that, and get all your conspiracy theory fans going here, Mike. Well, th- <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned
0: right. the the, uh, the smart speakers because the first team ever inside of the training sessions that Pat and I have put on, yeah, the first team of our most recent session was the first one ever to reference smart speakers and whether yeah. or not they could be tapped inside oh, yeah. of the scenario.
1: It's been right. done. That was several uh, games. Well, yeah, and I,
0: world, I, yeah. I, I love that they even thought of it. That was awesome. That was awesome.
4: Ah, two guys
0: E.T. E.T. doesn't look too good. This is where it starts to descend into some very, very serious emotional consequence for anybody watching, regardless Mm -hmm. of your age. Mm -hmm. And, uh, man, this is the downward spiral on the eagle wooden roller coaster Mm -hmm. of emotion. And, uh, wow, it is instantly impactful. It instantly makes you sit forward in your seat. Your eyes get big and wide because you're not entirely sure what you're witnessing more importantly you don't know where the story is going right there is no painted where the story is going inside of this story and i love it for that
2: because the first portion they've even in the short time frame i don't know up to what point how far into the movie this is but they've crafted it where you become attached mm-hmm. you know oh, yeah. and you've you've uh, you've become attached to that character
0: not to, to find a point on it but the link that's been made to Elliot. Yeah. Has also been made with the audience.
2: Right. Right.
0: Well and uh, the, unless it's not right.
1: right. And and then the other thing is is <laughs> if you're really not paying attention, you're not really realizing how he's going downhill because, you know, hence the flower kind of gives you that little hey, it's look the, the flower starting to yeah. yeah, starting to wilt away and die, and then you really don't pick up on that until the next morning. So And they don't over explain that. That's what I like. They don't
2: over explain just
0: enough. Yeah. You, know, you, you see, E yeah. T is withering. And so is the flower. You, right. you don't have anything stupid well, like don't that. Don't forget about Elliot either, because the link. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Thanks for exemplifying that, Pat. You see, there's a, there's a reason that there, the link is.
4: Two guys. Two
0: guys fingers E-T. and a lifetime of memories. It was showcased on the poster. It's been touched on in movies forever since this scene. And it is, it's almost a hallmark
2: of everything
0: that is this character. Sure. And the relationship between this character and Ellie. Right. And it's magical to watch. Uh, What I'd also rope in here, and Chris, you being the the devotee of religion that we have inside the program, Mm -hmm. it is that healing moment that has nothing else like it.
2: It's a faith-based healing moment, I guess, or some type of, uh, I mean, it's, it's. It's the light, right? It's the it's the uh, and they they visually show you that it's the light of uh, hope, right? You know, is hope fading or is it uh, getting stronger? And uh, are we going to have a good outcome? And I think that that's what they really captured. But you know, there's other Spielberg films try to highlight that too, and that's this is a this is a signature flare for him
4: you guys. E
2: T.
0: The withering flower bolt tells the tale. To talk about what Pat was focusing on previously, it starts to go downhill real quick here. Yeah. And again, the falling flower is a dedication to how dire a Great are symbolism,
1: going. right? Your indicator of things aren't looking well now. Yeah.
0: And uh, it's definitively got, at least for me, less emotion than what we're about to experience here. But wow. You know, it's it's totally impactful.
4: Two guys.
0: E.T. Clown feet and a sheet. And mom looks like a hooker. All right. So this is another fun bit where it's ironically Halloween. Mm -hmm. And the kids are going out. And so is E.T. Right. Right. Believable, Totally. This all, every single bit of this is totally believable. Yeah. It's also a little piece of levity that's definitely needed here, especially on the decline. And uh, it's wonderfully made.
4: Two guys.
0: E.T. E. The run-up to Flight. Just spellbinding in every way imaginable. Set against a rising moon. Boy, I, you know. I know Pat thinks that this is a one-note soundtrack. The difference is that I think the one notes that Pat is remembering are this one. Well, yeah. sure, because I mean, like this is this is the one that everyone remembers ET right. for.
1: Well, even that and just that that silhouette, the kid on the bike, that that with the moon. When you have to see that movie and you know that's ET, you know, yeah, just that that little still picture right there,
0: yeah. This moment, regardless of when I have watched this movie, and I don't know how many times I've watched this movie, it's a lot. I've watched this movie yeah, a that, lot.
2: This is the portion you never forget. And I mean, not it's only the, that, it instantly
0: it instantly makes Mike Wilkerson giant pile of man flesh. I, I just I'm destroyed every time that this scene comes onto the
3: screen. Yeah.
0: And it it's it's not only that, it, it is this wonderful transportive piece of music, which actually leads us into the very first of what I'm hoping is many different segments. From Callie, our English horn player from the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. Someone I've had the pleasure of doing a bunch of talking with over the course of the last several months. Everyone, this is Callie Bannum. Callie, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be with you. We've never had someone that knew anything about orchestra anything other than listening to it inside of any of my programs. Oh, I take that back. There was, there was someone that we talked to about the Lord of the Rings soundtracks, but that was probably 2008, 2009. So it's been a good long time since we talked about anything music with someone that knew a lot about music. So again, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
5: I'm the English horn player in the St. Louis Symphony. I've been with the orchestra for 17 years now. Very proud of my position there. And it's one of the greatest things that ever happened to me to join this orchestra of fantastic colleagues, very warm people, and spectacular musicians. And we work in a beautiful place, Powell Hall. So I really have it made. I grew up in Philadelphia and I went to music school in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and New York and had a lot of stops along the way with my career before I finally landed in the St. Louis Symphony.
0: What an extraordinary career. And again, congratulations on an incredibly long career. I just finished a 23-year career in tech and I hate to say it, but I think we're Kind of the dying breed of anybody that has a career that's over three to four years.
5: (laughs) Yeah. People switch jobs a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Is there a bunch of
0: job hopping that happens inside of orchestral circles or do people get in and they're able to stick around for a while or?
5: It's more common for people to stay because these jobs are ridiculously hard to get. It's so competitive. Mm. And there's kind of, for each orchestral player, there's kind of a window of time, which is your audition life, when you basically try to climb the ladder and get into the best position that you can acquire, like during that time when you can handle the pressure of auditions and you're more mobile. And it's usually for a wind player between age 25 and 35 when that's going on, for a string player usually between age 20 and 30. By mm. the time you hit those ages, you're you're generally where you're going to stay. So, and that held mm-hmm. true for me. I, I got my job in the St. Louis Symphony when I was 33. So I was like right in mm-hmm. that window, you know? <laughs> and generally yeah. people stay for about a quarter of a century. So it's, it's unusual. Wow. Yeah. That's
0: extraordinarily unusual. The only thing more unusual than that is, I think you're probably going to have to explain what an English horn is. Oh, of course. <laughs> I, I know that when I did a couple of interviews with you for another project, I was amazed to find out all of the things that you can do that sound very commonsensical when you deliver them, but I, I got to tell you, if I walk up to anybody in the street, I go, uh, Hey man, what's an English horn quick and they'll kind of look at me with three eyes. Well,
5: they're going to think think it's a French horn that you're talking about. So the mm-hmm. English horn is not to be confused with the brass instrument, the curly brass instrument, which is the French horn, or commonly known just as horn, the horn.
0: Also known as the fist thing yes, right. inside of two guys talking. <laughs>
5: that, oh, yeah, that's right. I heard that one. Yeah, yeah. The English horn is a big oboe. Every person who plays the English horn starts out as an oboe player, and any oboe mm-hmm. player can automatically play the English horn. It should be called tenor oboe, but it's a convoluted story how it ended up being called the English horn, but this is what it is. And it's a solo instrument within the orchestra. So each orchestra just has one person who plays the English horn. That person is also a member of the oboe section and plays second oboe or third oboe or oboe as needed. So that's my role.
0: Very interesting. We're going to have links inside the show notes over to the English horn, but also to Callie inside of this episode in the show notes. Remember, you can go check those out over at twoguystalking.com forward slash ET to get all of the show notes for this program. Kelly, why don't we, l- let's talk about this movie. Okay. This, is, this is easily one of my favorite films, and uh, as you appear in this segment, we're probably 75% through of the perspective review itself. And so we're inviting you to talk about some of the incredible orchestration that happens inside of this movie. Tell us in general what you think about this score and this soundtrack for this
5: film. Mike, I think that the score for E.T. is the best score in all of film history. It is the, of course, all the John Williams scores are luminous, you know, but this one has a gamut of the emotional scale, just all of the tenderness and the exhilaration. The writing, the orchestration is very complex very exciting. I've played this score with the orchestra and with the film a couple of times, and mm. a lot of my colleagues feel the same way, that this is their favorite John Williams score.
0: Yeah, th- there's no question that this is the one that moves me the most. Mm-hmm. You had talked about the, the gamut and the scope of human emotion inside of it, and I really do feel that. There are so many genres of movies that are sprinkled across this film, whether it be the aspects of horror, right? whether it just be the, the child wonderment, whether it be the curiosity of a broken parent, all of those things are incredibly clear here inside of this film wonderfully orchestrated by John Williams and the people that he surrounds himself with. Let's dig deeper. What strikes you the most inside of this?
5: Well, you mentioned the wonderment of the child. And for me, the most touching scene is the one in which Elliot and E.T. are kind of mimicking each other's gestures. They're getting to know each other Mm -hmm. for the first time. It's before E.T. talks. And the music that accompanies that, it's the first time that we hear the theme that is called E.T. and Me. And it's introduced in the harp with a kind of a gentle strings accompaniment and it's so innocent and kind of whimsical and it just makes you feel like you're a child again like you are Elliot and you are having this experience interacting with the creature and you know it's unusual the writing for the harp there there's trills that are done with one hand it's it's a very special thing for the harp player and so effective. That, that's one of the great things about John Williams. He finds different ways to use the standard instruments to create new sounds that kind of evoke new feelings. But I just love that moment in the film when that happens and the tenderness of it.
0: It's funny that you mentioned that. We actually had that as a bullet point inside of our perspective review earlier in the program. And what we referred to that scene as, it's the mirroring mm-hmm. segment. Yeah, And what I referred to inside of that discussion was uh, mirroring is one of the first things people especially of different languages do because really all you have when you meet somebody that speaks a completely different language or doesn't speak at all is the ability to look and see what's happening and then begin gesturing and as you gesture the other person is going to gesture and then you're going to start watching facial expression Mm -hmm. and the facial expression and the opening up of shoulders and the standing taller or leaning in and squinting all of those things are going to be leads into what comes next inside the next step of communication. And what's great about this film is that that's all captured inside of the segment you're talking about. The difference is that it's like this plastic creature. <laughs> yeah. And Elliot in a backyard someplace. And it's uh, it's glorious. It's it's yeah. another piece that turns me into a giant pile of man flesh. Uh-huh. I, I love this movie.
5: Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's crucial. tremendous. crucial. I mean, the music is so crucial in a scene like that without dialogue. I mean, yeah, and whether it's yeah. a chase scene or a moment of kindness with just action, John Williams is the master of orchestrating that. Yeah,
0: there's there's no question. There's also, we've talked about it several times, but the, the segment called The Call that uh, we've got linked again in the show notes over at twoguystalking.com forward slash ET, you can watch... Uh, the segment between Stephen and John Williams as they begin to dial in and figure out which notes, which of the five notes are going to be the call for E.T. Oh, yeah. And it's it's, it's electric. Yes. Uh, Watching both of their minds play on each other is, it's like watching chocolate. You know, it's just like, give me more. I can't watch hard enough when I see that.
5: They have such respect for each other as artists. And it's unusual for a director to have that kind of a relationship with a composer. I mean, part of E.T. was actually recut to match the music. You know, the final scene, there's a long sequence at the end that's an action sequence. It starts a little bit before the boys are on their bikes, and it's the escape scene. And that segment of music is really complicated. And when they were recording it, John Williams was having trouble aligning every single accent in every single section with different points of action in the film. And they did it several times and finally Spielberg just turned the movie off and said, John, just record it the way that you want it to be with your tempos and I'll recut the film. And that's exactly what happened for that final sequence. So they took the best take from the orchestra and then Spielberg recut the film to match, and it's perfect if you're paying attention to the way that it's going with the score. Like the bikes landing, the the moment that you see those boys and on their bikes for the first time, it's the beginning of the new chase music, which is my favorite part of the score. Is that final chase music? Of course, then it develops into a way that leads into the flying theme. People think of it as the E. T. theme, you know. Yes, that's
3: it. That's it. Well,
0: we'll we'll lilt it in here too. There's little lilts inside. Remember, everybody can go and buy the soundtrack. I want to make sure you all understand we're utilizing the music as an educational tool. It's also a little insert to help YouTube with all of their needs and wants inside of the visual version of what we're going to be conveying here as well.
5: Yeah. Yeah, I think you better use the uh, the actual score and not my singing in that part. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Every single little piece of there, uh, really, the respect that Steven Spielberg gives to John Williams because doing that with filmmakers is not traditionally how that's done at all. Usually, a director or a filmmaker is going to come in thundering and want this, this, and this, and where is it, and why isn't it done the way I want it? Mm-hmm. To to relinquish command of what you're creating in regard to a feature film like E.T. and go, i tell you what, yeah. why don't you just record what sounds great and I'm going to change my movie to match
5: it. I don't know of in film history. In cinema history, that may be the only time that's ever happened.
0: Well, and I'll bet you it, it probably has happened somewhere else. And I'll tell you, it's only been with John
5: Williams. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> it's the only one who would get that kind of a clout, you know. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people that are involved with
0: uh, John Debney was uh, someone else that we had talked to, and the ability to play inside of the ideas of, uh, of what are provided inside a film is a great one, unless you're locked down into a box, and that's what you get to do. Right. And no one likes being locked down in a box. It doesn't matter what your craft is. And so, again, for Spielberg to just kind of open the door and say, tell you what, you do what you want, and we'll make it work. I just... It's stunning, and it's as stunning as this movie is, really.
5: I love that too. You know that the musician was such a part of the full product. You know of the of the of what you're seeing too. You know,
0: yeah. Chris had said earlier in the program that if you don't have this music, I'm not entirely sure you have ET. And he's totally right. It's so funny that we're talking about a being with a an illuminous heartbeat. You, you actually use the word illuminous yeah. when we were talking about John Williams inside of this. And he is instantly conveyed through the music as much as E.T.'s heart is inside of this film.
5: Yeah, and you know, I recently rewatched it and I was just delighted to be reminded that the English horn plays a solo at the moment when E.T.'s heart glows when he's about to get on his ship. Like when, he, when they're in the forest and they've gotten there and they're kind of safe-ish. And he knows that he is going to be rejoined in that moment when the heart glows, when it turns on, there is the English horn solo playing the call. I just love that. <laughs> when, see, and now
0: everyone will know that they have not only heard an English horn, but where they can go to reference it mm-hmm. inside of E.T.'s soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Man, that's just, that, that's
5: so perfect. John Williams used the English horn often in important ways in his films. And... When I met him one time, I thanked him for that, for the way that he wrote for the English horn. And uh, especially, you know, in the first three Harry Potters and Princess Leia theme, things like that. Everybody's gathering around trying to get a selfie. And I just thought, I don't want to (laughs) overwhelm this person. There's a huge receiving line. I'm just going to shake his hand and thank him for the way he wrote for my instrument. So he conducted a concert with us and of of all of his music a while back. And what a career highlight that was.
0: What a a tremendous Mm -hmm. honor for sure. And uh, a man that has given so much to cinema history, but also to musicians, because again, the, the reason I wanted to have you on was to tell us more about the perspective of being able to step into the role of being able to convey music like that. What does that, what does that do for you as a musician?
5: It's wonderful to play these films. This is something that's, new within the last really 12 years or so in the orchestra industry this format of having the film and the orchestra playing the score live they there's these packages that they can get where they digitally remove the the music the score everything else remains all the sound effects all of the dialogue everything else and there's a system by which a conductor can lead you through the score. So this wasn't going on when I joined the St. Louis Symphony. This is something that is relatively new. And so for the first time in, in orchestra life, playing these film scores is part of the experience of being in a, a major American orchestra. My teacher wasn't doing this, even though the films were out. But this is something that is... I think a wonderful addition to our duties as orchestral musicians. And you know, we love it. We really love it. And I'm so glad I've gotten to play, you know, all of the Harry Potters and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jurassic Park, but really my favorite is E.T. Yeah, there's the, the
0: programs that you're talking about are something really, really special. And for those of you that are listening that have not had the opportunity, I would urge you to find your nearest orchestration outlet and see when they're going to have the next program of an entire orchestra. And for those of you that weren't following what Kelly's saying, it's where you go and you watch the movie. And the difference is that you'll you'll hear all the sounds and the talking that's going on. But in addition to the orchestration that's still laid into the sound that you're hearing through the sound system, there's an entire full orchestra performing the actual music that's being played. And it is, I, I keep using the word electric with this movie, and... Illuminous, but it's there's a it's another it's a different breathing atmosphere when you have the entire orchestra conveying the music that was originally included for this film. And it's it's magic. It's it's incredible.
5: It's so exciting. People just go crazy. They go crazy. Yeah.
0: Well, Callie Bantam, what a wonderful insertion today. I appreciate your taking the time and jumping into what we've got going on here via the perspective reviews and inside of this episode of What Cops Watch. Thank you again so much. Why don't you tell people how people can find you?
5: Oh, they can visit my website, CallieBanham.com. And it's C-A-L-L-Y, CallieBanham.com.
0: That's terrific. Again, we'll have that in the show notes for everyone to go see over at twoguystalking.com forward slash E-T. Kelly Banham, thank you so much from the guys and I. You have a good night. Get home safe. Pleasure, Mike. Thank you. And that's why we have somebody that plays this music talk about the music of feature films like this. Right. It's extraordinary. It conveys not only a different perspective, but a completely different skill set that none of the three of us have. Right. Kelly, thank you again for your contribution to this episode. And uh, I look forward to building a whole bunch of really great projects with you and the orchestra community that I've begun to meet over the course of the last several months. Uh, they, too, are transformative people and have a, such a, a wonderful, desirable skill set. Just really, really great stuff.
4: Two guys. E-T.
0: Falling asleep outside again. This is a wonderful moment that harkens back to the first time that Elliot falls asleep outside. The difference is that when he wakes up this time, you know that it wasn't a dream. But more importantly, you've no idea what happened. Right. Again, it's the question mark inside of storytelling that so many stories are missing. They don't ever actually ask the question and then don't instantly deliver on top of it. Right. And I love that they take time to not only massage the story by having at least a, several minutes where you don't actually know what has happened. Right. None of it feels good, but you don't know what happened.
1: Right. And you can just kind of tell just from the the setup of, you know, The police officer's at the house, he's missing now, how long has he been missing, all that kind of stuff. So you can can tell it's starting to go in a
4: bad direction. Two guys talking. E.T. Did they come? Is he gone?
0: Those are the questions you're asking yourself, and it's not immediately made available. This is the piece of suspense that, again, Spielberg delivers in spades inside of all of his films. Right. Regardless of what the emotions are, there's this piece of suspense that he doesn't just instantly give you and instantly gratify you with. Right. And again, especially in stark comparison to what you see inside of modern day storytelling, the requirement to do that is not there. No. And and again, I, I wish more modern day movies would understand the power that you have when you don't Instantly deliver something that somebody expects.
2: Because closure has to have pacing also. Right. You have to have that that correct pacing with closure.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Two guys. E.T.
0: Reporting a missing child then and now.
1: Pat, what's standard operating procedure for reporting a missing child now? Do you know? Well, it's almost kind of what was going on there. Although, obviously, back in the 80s, it was always the question, well, did he have any reason to run away? Cuz that's kind of how it was always, you know, treated. Well, obviously the kid must have ran away, right? Cuz what else would they other than all the serial killers that was out in the 80s? But, you know, then now we know, right?
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and let's let's glance back to when we were kids. Let's face it. You were miles away from their your Dude, house. You I had no you right? had no cell phone. I, I, I was you out had no all con- hours. mom said or dad says, <laughs> they said, "Hey, okay. Hey, you know what? Be back by dinner." So you were gone the whole day, right? Yeah. And it's just not that way today. Yeah. Well, it's just not that I'll, way. I'll
0: go you even one further. And I love discussions like this inside of podcasts because there's such the nod moment that happens inside of these. Yeah. I just didn't come home if I didn't want. I just stayed over at my friend's Jeff's house right. and, I, and yeah. I called my as mom. As long as you called. Yeah. 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 Right. And I just stayed over there for like maybe a series of days. and I just Especially That's summertime. just the way that it happened. And then he would, yeah. And then he would come over in the summer and he'd stay over at my house for a series of days and just right. tell, call and tell his parents, hey, ma." Uh, sorry, not coming home tonight. Okay. No problem. Thanks. Right. By the way, 882-8158, Jeff Allen's number. How about yeah. that?
2: Yeah. You know, yeah. just
0: crazy town.
2: You had to get to that landline phone. I mean, it was, yeah. you had to get to a phone and you had to call Now you were right. in trouble if you didn't call, mm-hmm. you know, and then after, I don't know what, 24 hours, they would call maybe the police. <laughs> or, or my dad would just go out and try to hunt me down, you know, but that's the way it was. Not today. Today we have Amber Alerts. Today we have technology. Today we have uh, we would have pictures all over social media if we thought that the you know something Kids are was suspicious. For an hour, um, it's, it's you know what? red alarm. It's, you know let's you know go what right now. It's yeah. You're calling out the cavalry and you are looking actively. Yeah. The
0: difference between there being now an army seeking out somebody who's missing versus what was is 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 a stark reality. It's no question.
4: Two guys talking.
0: E-T. Another question for law enforcement. All right. So this force has descended upon this portion of a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. What's the reaction, guys? What's the reaction from local law enforcement?
2: As far as local law enforcement integrating with that, I guess there's questions, jurisdictional boundaries, what's going on? Because you got to figure local law enforcement is going to be handling all of the pushback from the public. If you want to look at back then versus today, I put that in modern day, You know, the social media platforms would be lit up mm-hmm. with, look at all these pictures. Look at, who is this? The police are telling me this isn't them. Video. They don't know who this is. Drone this isn't footage, that. all of it. And really, it wouldn't occur with the collaboration with our federal partners. It just wouldn't occur unless that publicly, unless we knew about it, unless we were collaborating with them. Because it's not like you're going in covertly. So back then, you know, media didn't have social media. There wasn't that type of presence where it was all over. That might have been one person getting on a landline calling a neighbor, hey, did you see this, or somebody calling the police department. And, you know, back then it was more or less, yeah, it's nothing to see here, or, you know, we don't know, yeah, we'll send somebody out, we'll investigate that. But some of it's Hollywood, too. I mean, you know, 31 years that I've been in this, I can say I remember very good cooperation, even back then, with our federal partners.
0: Matt, is there anything that's crisis negotiator perspective to share inside of this situation? I mean, we're talking about an yeah. entire
2: community yeah. wondering
0: what in the hell is going really, on. But here's
1: my biggest concern is is in the 20-something years, I've yet to see a policy of how do you deal with that alien when he shows up? Who gets jurisdiction? Who? You know, so let's just say it happened today. It'd be something new because mm-hmm. nobody's ever dealt with it before, right? So you really don't know what's going to happen. What's going to be the... What's going to be the response? Who's going to show up? You know, you always had that government entity. Well, where is that government entity coming from? You know, I don't know. I mean.
0: Well, I'm curious what they would tell you guys to just walk into your town and do whatever they want.
1: Who who knows? Like, how
0: how would that
2: actually work? I don't think it would go down like that. I mean, we collaborate on so many things these days anyway. and, And you're talking about something that, like Pat's saying, Really, there's no policy on it. I mean, if you really wanted to get right down to it, yeah. if it's an enforcement entity, federal enforcement entity, what laws being violated? Is there a threat to public safety? Is there a threat to the national government? I mean, you've always got to go back to mission. What's the mission? Why are you here? What, is, what do you want to accomplish? And, you know, sometimes it's we, just like our federal partners, go out to investigate suspicious things. But, I mean, that only goes so far. There's only so many so many laws that cover us as far as what what we can do. I don't know. I do not know how that would exactly go down, but I can tell you just modern day federal governments typically not going to come in without collaborating with us because they know as well as we do. You go in and you have a big presence and such like that, that's going to get some people's attention. That's going to stir some people up. It's better to be up front with the public and tell them, "Hey, this is what's happening. This is what's going down." So you don't have that public panic.
4: Two guys ET.
0: E. Then Mike's horrific discovery. This piece is the other piece that kills me inside of this movie, amongst other giant pieces that kill me in this movie. Because the production design that was done on essentially dead ET in the gutter yeah. is oh, yeah. Yeah. striking as
1: hell. Just the, mm-hmm. co- the color, the total, color alone. Total, yeah, total boot
0: just... to the head. Total boot to the head. An in- instant moment of you got to be kidding me. And again, it gets me every time. Even now, as a fifty-two-year-old man, it, I'm instantly struck the same way every single time I see.
4: Two guys talking.
0: <laughs> E.T. Mike going to mom. Again, I love the realism here. It's no joke. I need you to come with me, mm-hmm. and. Again, the tenor of a, a young actor like that to be able to pull that off and it'd be completely believable. Just total game on.
4: Yeah. Ah, two, guys, two guys.
0: E.T. The men in suits <laughs> arrive.
1: Yeah, space suits. Um,
2: <laughs> we'll
0: we'll, we'll, we'll leave that to the Are bad. We to, the, to the bad. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's one of Pat's
2: bads.
0: Again, this is one where not only is Spielberg making an atmosphere... There's literally an atmosphere generated here. And uh, I, I, I loved all of it. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's instantly taking a family into a place they could never have possibly imagined they were the morning beforehand. And that you can never imagine you would ever be in. And by the way, you're in it. Just magic.
4: Two guys.
0: E.T. An hour 19 in, and we see the man with Key's face For the very first time. Yeah. This is the magic of being able to showcase a character that you don't know or see or do anything with, except that they have an impact in the story, Mm -hmm. until over an hour into the film. This is the same thing that Spielberg did with Jaws. For those that are curious, it's 47 minutes. You have no idea what the actual shark looks like. Right. And then he's introduced 47 minutes into the film. This is masterful storytelling, and it is a piece of suspense that is almost completely lost nowadays. And it's why going back to a feature film like ET is so magical every time you see it.
4: Two guys talking. ET. The speed of a DNA
0: test in 1982.
2: Forever. Forever. Very expensive. High. High priority. It's just not going to happen. Would the first alien
0: connection be the high Possibly. priority? Yeah, but I, it
2: still wouldn't be that
0: fast. Possibly.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, hey, let's talk about it now, though. If you guys had a case and you knew you needed DNA sequencing done, what are we talking now?
2: We could, I mean,
1: yeah, they could turn it I around quickly. You know? uh, forgetting that it's uh, an alien. It depends on I what you are like doing. Just, if you're like going a against case. a known, it'd yeah. be faster. If you're going against an unknown, yeah. it could take a little while But,
2: just, but just the, but just the, uh, what they can utilize these days too. Back then, if you're talking about DNA and you've got like a decent, you'd have to have a minimum sample of whatever, blood, whatever it is. You know, these days they have touch DNA where they can pull DNA off of just almost like a fingerprint. So the technology has increased so much and the availability of that has increased so much that, uh, yeah, it's, I think, I don't know, Pat can comment. I think it's night and day compared to what it was back in 82.
4: You guys
0: it. E-T. Understanding the law, men walking in and setting up investigatory shop while you're gone. Mm-hmm. So, so again, they come back to the house and all this shit's just erected, mm-hmm. right? What what's the what are we looking at law wise there?
1: Well, um, I guess it depends on what I mean. They obviously with the spacesuits, they're deeming what? he's a, he's a hazard to the whole environment. So now that kind of lays a different ground. You know, is is it he's such a hazard that it's going to I mean, you know, we have to do what we got to do, you know. I mean, I know, it's exigent circumstances. Yeah, I think know. it's
2: Hollywood. I mean, you taking over somebody's house.
1: You better have something big. Like I mean, a, you, like an, like an alien, alien, alien that's dying in your ba- in your bathroom. I, I, don't, I don't know. know that, that I don't be. So big, I don't know.
2: Maybe uh, these days, I don't. I don't know if that cuts it. I'm telling you, I don't know. No, it you depends, can't come in <laughs> my house to see on, the alien. Depends on where you're at. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't think they were interested in asserting the Second Amendment with, uh, with no. They e. did back not. Then. They Probably absolutely not.
2: did not. You know, okay. I mean, the uh, <laughs> we can go off the. Uh, yeah, you, you're not coming in my house, and you've got the <laughs> the three family members there armed.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and then we're hiring the attorney. You know. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Attorney's outside with a with a hand right. waiting for them to right. come in. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Very interesting. Two guys talking.
0: E. T. Brilliance of the device. This again goes back to some really great production design. Believe it or not, there's a whole bunch of really great behind the scenes commentary that is devoted to the device itself. Not only the design of it, but the actual structure and nature of it. So that it looks real, but Mm -hmm. it's still fantasy. I mean, like Mm -hmm. that, 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 that little unit could emit some sort of signal that could be heard somewhere else Mm -hmm. where it would need it to be. You got to doubt all kinds of that. But the neat part about it is what they paint, you don't bother. You don't right. bother doubting anything because you're looking right at it.
4: Two guys talking.
0: E.T. The bottoming out of E.T.'s vitals and the reemergence of Elliot. And this leans against directly into the link. Sure. And why the link is suddenly then broken, because E.T. apparently dies... Right, a very interesting thing that I think actually leans into some of
1: Pat's hatred. Again, is that accurate? Makes no sense, but you know, whatever. We'll, we'll we'll dive more into that. Yes, we'll we'll
0: hit that in the bads, for sure. Yeah. Two
4: guys talking.
0: E T. A flower dies, and it's over, and he's gone, and there is this incredibly impactful simple view of et's face colorless not moving and then a whip pan with the plastic being pulled over his face mm-hmm. it is horrific it is it is e- easily one of the largest pieces of horror i remember as a child you know unless you were unfortunate to have a parent dying in front of you when you were 12 you will no. never have seen something like that no and that it was unflinching and conveyed inside of this Spielberg film. Just amazing. Right. Just amazing. I agree.
4: Two guys. E.T. E.
0: A door closes. A light illuminates. A flower blooms and hope arrives. Right. Incredibly impactful.
2: It was a culmination of all those things that they've built up. And like we talked about, the, you know the symbolic light the life the thing you know where he has fingers illuminated and the light and the hope and all that they i think this is the moment where they bring it all back together Mm -hmm. let me take you to the brink of despair oh by the way it's a fictional movie i can bring you back yeah and he does and it's like that crescendo of hope
0: it's instant it's literal instant and emotional illumination Right. And it's just, again, it's magical. It's another piece that completely destroys Mike Wilkerson's brain.
4: Two guys. Talk
0: E.T. An escape plan hatched and spoiled. Mm-hmm. This is fun. Again, There, there is a total escape plan that's in place. And it's kind of thrown sideways because... They're just kids, and they've never done anything like this before.
2: Well, and Spielberg movies are famous for their escape (laughs) plans and these types of things, right? I mean, you go back to you know the the Goonies and 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 all that, and it's just it's just very you know it's very Spielberg.
4: Yeah. Two guys
0: talking. E.T. Area map awareness at age twelve. Can you guys remember your immediate? essentially central hub of where your house was oh, at yeah. age 12
2: mm-hmm. yeah because we rode our bikes all over spider webbed out from every i mean that was home base right i mean yeah. and and yeah and i can tell you even without roadways i could tell you the dirt paths and and you know, cut through this cornfield and buy this barn and then get back into a subdivision i could tell you all those yeah, paths yeah. i'm the
1: sure i think pat- I forgot what their actual word was for where they were meeting, the rendezvous point or whatever it may have been, but they all knew where they were going. So,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that was great. Again, i, I that's actually called the audience. What do you guys remember of knowing your immediate neighborhood when you were 12? Because I liked both of these guys. It was the back of my hand. It wasn't a huge hand, but it was the back of my hand. I knew where everything was. I knew exactly where I was. And there was no getting lost inside of where I would go regularly because I knew everything.
4: Do guys
0: talk e. arrival at the playground. I understand, and a second bike ride ensues. You know, and if you thought I was destroyed on the first bike ride, I'm destroyed the second time as well. I mean, it's just it. it not only is it Elliot and ET flying, it's now a whole bunch of friends flying. Yeah. And it's just, it's magical.
4: Right. Two guys. E.T.
0: The ship arrives. A healthy, confident voice extols home. Wow. The other thing that's happening here is there's another giant swell of music that we're also going to link off to a video from a guy named Rick Biotto. Rick Beato did a wonderful video that exemplifies the last minute of this film and how he thinks that the last minute of this film is likely one of the most powerful pieces of movie soundtrack ever created in human history. The video is wonderful. For those that don't know about Rick Beato, you really do need to go and listen to Rick Beato. You don't have to be a music aficionado. If you have any interest in just about any kind of music at all, but if you have an interest in classic rock, Uh you will instantly be allured by Rick Beato, and just about anything that he does has some really, really great flavor. Rick Beato is also featured inside of a new series that's coming to Two Guys Talking. It's called The YouTube Scout. YouTube Scout is going to be pointing out different things inside of the YouTube cone that you likely have not yet found. Um, So make sure you go check that out, too. That's over at YouTubescout.com a closing rainbow and once again the call again i'm completely destroyed at the end of this movie (laughs) it's so impactful i'm thinking about it now i'm thinking about the music and it just it instantly illuminates every single human emotion i've had throughout this film It's also why it's one of my favorite films because it solicits so many different emotions in the span of the hour plus that it comes. Well,
1: I just think it's proven my point about the Reese's was Skittles would have been a lot better. (laughs) 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 Definitely, for the record, I can't stand Skittles. Way better than Reese's, especially with the rainbow at the end. What what more? more Did they have Skittles back (laughs) then? (laughs) There were they even? I don't think there were (laughs) Skittles back then.
0: There's a Um, wonderful piece of the the commentary that leans directly into why they were used. <laughs> we'll showcase, uh, there's a link to a video that we'll showcase like that shares all yes, of that too. Let's
2: and, see. and your yeah. favorite candy. Yeah. I think we need to <laughs> let's, do let's, a poll <laughs> of your favorite candy.
0: And that's actually a great segue into break here. What did you guys think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on utilizing the Reese's pieces, or they should have just pivoted over to the catch the real rainbow by getting Skittles involved. Let us know what you think by going to our website over at WhiteCopsWatch.com. We're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be right back with some of the bad.
5: Looking for a straightforward user interface on a cost-effective feature-filled multi-track recording software? Call off the search! MixCraft from Acoustica has exactly what you're looking for. It's time to include reliable audio creation and editing software with real punch into your projects check out MixCraft now over at Acoustica.com forward slash MixCraft and start a new generation of audio creation and editing today.
0: I wanted to share for just a minute about how I'm hearing not only my own voice inside this episode, but also all of my other podcasting efforts and, well, even my phone calls. I've been using Raycon earbuds for years now, and their most recent gear, well, It's great, stays put inside my ears, provides me with awareness mode to keep me frosty inside the studio and out, and the battery life has literally changed the way I'm able to stay connected, both during and outside the podcast studio. Are you done with your listening experience? Well, it's time to reach out to Raycon and see what they've got for you. All colors, all types, all price points, and dude, they're all good. Check out the links in my show notes to get a discount and a little kickback to my efforts to help repel great content. Thanks, Raycon. You keep the rays shining inside and outside of my studio, and I appreciate
3: it.
4: Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm. One stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing the voice farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box from the voice box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Two guys talking ET. Not bad.
0: Ah, there's not many inside of here, and thankfully most of them are Patrick-led. So well, let's we, get we straight beat to this them.
1: Reese's In- pieces to death. So we'll we'll skip that part. <laughs> let's just go to this okay. link, okay? The link. Yeah. Um. The link. That makes no right. sense to me. I, I get if it was an emotional link that would make more sense, but you know now mm-hmm. he's drinking beer. Elliot's getting drunk. Et's watching a movie. Elliot's playing out the movie. So uh, really, I mean, come on. I, I don't know. It just didn't make a lot of sense to me then thinking ten year old me would probably make me more or less sense, so I'm not real sure where that was going, but that was my bad, so just just
0: and Chris, what do you think of the link in general?
1: You know, I thought back in the day it was
2: uh, especially when they were talking about aliens or space aliens whatnot with I think there were other allusions to a link, you know either a link to life or a link to an emotion or some kind of connection. And I think that that's what they were trying to build on was Mm -hmm. because as, as I said before, they built him up. He's part of the family, but he's more than part of the family. Mm -hmm. He's actually linked to Elliot. Yeah. And this, I think the link directly goes to that. Elliot has to be the lean in
0: moment for people. Right. I.e. if they'd only made the the flower and I don't know if this is a piece of how it actually happened, but if they'd only made the flower as the status symbol of what's going on with E.T. Mm -hmm. I don't know that anybody would have cared Right. Because it, it, okay, so the flower dies and E.T. dies. Okay, check. But now when you make it, oh my God, the kid's going to die? Right. It instantly ups the game in regard to care. Yeah. Right. The pathos that instantly happens because that's there is why the link is there. Now the science, I bad that is the uh, science that's I the beast that's pissing you it's off just- or? Like I okay, said, it, I'd have been fine here, with the emotional
1: link and tying all it in. And maybe even with a little bit of, oh, E.T.'s kind of starting to fade away now, Elliot's, because there's something there. But the whole, like I said, the whole one scene where the, he's drinking the beer and then he's dancing, and that explains nothing as far as a link. Yeah.
0: I, I think what I'm going to do, and I, I, again, I can't confirm this, but remembering pieces of the novelization cliff notes, essentially, that I've read. Because E.T. is a botanist inside of his culture. And because of the tethers that he has collected already from Earth over a series of 10,000 years, coming to and fro, which is why there's a history of UFO sightings, by the way, somewhere between him taking the moment to heal Elliot with his magic superpower finger and his interaction with what happens on Earth is what gives you the link. So I can't tell you that that's exactly what it is. But if I had to try and paint something that kind of makes some sense, if you insert science fiction alien supposed <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that's kind of where I would go with it the fact of the matter is that why they did it was because of pathos I'm not telling you that I don't care if a flower dies
3: mm-hmm. right?
0: but I don't care if a flower dies I care instantly if 10 year old kid dies because somehow there's some magic tether between he and an alien right right yep okay well, but I understand your hatred
4: two guys talking E.T.
0: Keys changing sides. Now, I don't think any of the three of us are the continuity Nazis that some of my former co-hosts are. Mm -hmm. But this is one of the big ones that I know uh, there's at least a couple of my co-hosts that would instantly cue in on this. Mm -hmm. Where the keys changing sides is a big rub. Because you guys know, especially as law enforcement people, you kind of have your duty belt or where you put stuff on you. And it's always there, right? Mm -hmm. For those curious, my keys right now are in my right pocket. My mm-hmm. wallet is in my right front pocket.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: In my back pocket are two pocket knives. Mm-hmm. And they are always in that configuration. There's, not, there's nothing else going on. Mm-hmm. And so that that would change on a dude like this dude?
1: Not yeah, I so think much. that's just one of those mm-hmm. hiccups where someone didn't write it down and then they forgot and it is what it was. So,
0: Yeah. yeah. What it also exemplifies is that's how much we had to pick right. on finding negatives right. inside of
2: this film. I don't even remember that.
0: Two guys talking. E.T.
4: Breathing tubes that
0: lead nowhere. Now, on the guy with keys as he's inside talking to Elliot, if you look, the tubes leading up to his helmet, they don't actually go anywhere. Now it's panned through quick enough that if nobody ever told you that, right. you probably wouldn't ever notice I it. I wouldn't have noticed it. But they don't lead to anything. At least his, the two suit is more nowhere.
1: presentable as a toxic environment, other than the I'm going to the moon spacesuits that we we bring into at the very beginning. So I'll and let actually, that I'll let that one slide. And actually, the, for the spacesuits. Yeah,
0: this is actually. Yeah, th- this is actually probably a good time to bring up the space. Is there more hatred you want to dump on the so audience? The doors
1: open and here comes Neil Armstrong coming through my house, walking on the moon. I mean, what does that have to do? It's not a, it's not a hazmat suit. It's a space suit. So I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess yeah. the point is, oh, he's from space, so we're gonna deal. I don't know, whatever.
3: <laughs> yeah.
4: Two guys talking. E.T. Are masks and protective
0: items not needed after an atomic alien dies? Something you'll notice inside of this feature film is that after E.T. dies, everybody derobes. Not so awesome well,
2: for an environment you want to try and keep clean in, right? Well, I mean, if you're using logic. They had spacesuits. They came, they, came, well, they came in in hazmat Space suits. suits. And they tried to assess the environment, and if the environment is radioactive, toxic, or whatever, you would either have not needed them at that point, yeah. or you would have continued needing them throughout. Yeah. Now, this he was a, in that they like didn't, tent they didn't thing insert thing, too, anything. so
1: maybe once they got out of the tent, they figured, oh, we're good, too. Although they let Elliot sit there and hug on the dead alien as he's dead in the little gump and things. Yeah, what's up, thing, so yeah
2: what's up with that? Right?
0: Yeah. Something else, a, a total nod to the people that made the the feature film, uh, the people that are inside the, essentially the emergency room here,
3: mm-hmm. they're
0: actually emergency room people. And so a lot of the terminology kind of and complaint. vocabulary that they were using
3: mm-hmm. are
0: actual pieces of medical terminology of trying to help rescue somebody that's in distress. Huh. Again, it's a piece of the believability picture that's painted without actually thinking about it, but you have to think about
4: it. Two guys talking. E.T
0: the special effects i can't believe we're going to talk about the special effects in the bad but again well, insert more patrick i, I will give
1: bad. it it was 80 the 80s so you know you get what you want but et itself doesn't hold up very well i mean especially when i i always go back and think star wars yoda even going back and watching empire i still believe yoda's yoda you know yeah totally et yeah it just totally doesn't agree. look as as real as you would think it would be so that was that 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 one thing. Is Isn't that, that funny that this is presented right. a year and later? Then, and, right. yeah, so I, I just don't so, know what maybe they were trying to make it too real with them actually walking around and doing stuff to where they kind of lost some of that, whereas you kind of Yoda kind of they set him more in just sterile positions where he wasn't moving around enough so you didn't kind of get all that fakeness, I think, from the, the e.T character.
3: Hmm.
0: Mm. interesting. Did you notice that some of the scenes were pulled off with of a dude yeah. with no legs? Well, now you know. That's what we had for bads. We're curious what you guys thought was bad. Do you join Patrick in some of the hatred that he spills on this American classic feature film? Or do you have a little bit more level head like Chris and I? Let us know what you think by going over to our website over at whatcupswatch.com. Fill out the quick web form and tell us what you think. The franchise. Now, we talked about how much money this feature film made, and it made just a ton of money. But the fact is that the franchise, I'm not telling you that it died here, but what didn't happen... Was it well, there? Was let's See? talk
1: about a part of this. This, is, this just goes back to a little bit more hatred. How about the Atari game? I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the ET Atari game, I think, was pretty much what crashed Atari. I don't, I'm not real sure, but they actually had so many extra cartridges, they, they threw these in a landfill. And they actually made a documentary, just, you know.
2: Just oh, for the know. record, I never spent my money on the uh, <laughs> ET Atari was, game. It, I'm just saying, yeah, it was very bad well. investment. By and, Pat. You know,
1: you had to put the pieces of the machine together, and it was that? it was Remember non-winnable. That? Remember that? Remember that's that? what led to the downfall of the ET Jeff, Atari game. Jeff Didn't Allen it? won I, it. I played times. that game hours so upon did. hours upon hours, and never won the damn thing. He's still playing it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> still playing in his mind right now. As we speak inside of this episode. Again, the franchise is far more about it being a stair step inside of feature film
2: history. But did they do a lot of marketing afterwards? Were the, was there a lot of E.T. toys, E.T. lunchboxes, E.T.?
0: There was. This was also one of the very first steps into what was real VHS ownership. Okay. E.T. hitting VHS sets was big. Was it? The thing was that is that it was years later that it came out. When it did come out, it was huge yeah. uh, because again, it was it's where we were leaning into being able to own the movies and not have to just remember them when you
1: saw them in the film. That's what wh- I'm just like from happening. a merchandise perspective. I don't remember a lot of things, either do I, out yeah. other than like you said, lunch boxes. But I don't remember having hey, let have your live ET doll that you can put your hand in and make them work. You know, I don't remember any of that stuff, so I don't know.
2: Action
0: I don't, figures, I don't know. Yeah.
1: Action something. figures, or
0: I know that there were in bubble plastic. Obviously, action figures is relative because, I mean, like, is he going to raise his arms and maybe his neck? Again, I know that the uh, VHS stuff was huge. That that I remember specifically. But what we'll do is we'll leave some links inside the show notes. I'll go and research that and find some of the toys that were available then and see what they're worth on eBay now. Again, I'll leave the links inside the show notes.
2: You know, Mike, before we end the franchise, too, I think that it's important that we go out to the audience with probably the most important question of this entire podcast. Should there be a sequel?
0: Yeah, and I think where I want to lean in regard to sequel, the sweet irony of this film coming out where it did in 82 was that this may actually have been a sequel where Close Encounters is actually the first film. I, I, could I can inter- agree with that.
3: that.
0: Now, again, my affinity with Close Encounters is going to be very well detailed inside of the, inside of the Close Encounters perspective review, which we're not doing here. But the two are wonderful pieces of a kaleidoscope that you can look at in regard to visiting with aliens and some of the pieces, again, uh, a strange family, incredible special effects for the time mm-hmm. stories that instantly submerge you. Mm-hmm. There can be no denying that both of them are extraordinary, immersive feature films,
2: but take that theory that they're linked mm-hmm. and ask the question, do they do a third movie? to drive that home that is an incredible risk oh yeah but what's the audience think do we do it i think that that's a perfect question for the audience
0: let us know what you guys think should there be another tack on that could either be a third part of the story or something that instantly graphs on to what was the end of et let us know what you think by going over to our website again it's what dot com. fill in the quick web form and tell Let's us say what we do you it think.
1: and bring the original cast back you know and then then you have just like Top Gun. Then you have these new people that. Why not? Are An alien it's with okay. his kids. It could, <laughs> right. It's
2: yeah. a risk. It could completely collapse. And yeah. have a superhero appear. Right.
1: I mean, why not? Yeah. Right.
2: It'd have to be done exactly right.
0: I don't think Spielberg will be alive, and it will happen. He'll have
2: to die first.
0: Well, I don't think.
3: Well, he's. I don't doing think he'd sequel do it. to Avatar. No, that's, Cameron, Cameron, that's, Cameron, that's Cameron. I didn't I Cameron.
0: think.
1: I think I didn't think they'd ever do a sequel.
0: They're gonna do like four movies that are sequels. I mean, it's crazy. It's I don't crazy know. If,
2: I don't know if. Did he ever do the Goonies sequel?
0: Yeah, Goonies so will never be revisited.
1: It was. They were thinking about it. Really? Yes. I thought. Actually, there was a big rumor that Goonies was supposed to be getting remade. Yeah. Uh, I, I, so um, I it. it just not, never a It's still it in discussion. I thought, as, I just read something about it. And Do
0: not touch. Uh, By the way, I, well, you and I were talking about it the other day. Goonies is not that great a movie. No,
1: not, it doesn't. I like it, it either. It. Well, oh, I liked I it. Hit. Everybody liked it when it you're 12, dumbass. Go watch it now. I did. It's well, a joke. I Come on now. I, I tried watching Stop it, it with my seven year old and I forgot about Stop the, it. I forgot about the PG rating back then. And, Only because oh, yeah. you now look it's like it. a
0: cousin of the guy that's this, in it. That's no the, different
1: it. Than ET. <laughs> the I Stop ET. It. No, no. Et the had language. no no pg thirteen so the language in language, et terrible yeah he called him a what a, a penis breath penis breath in the in the uranus in my, my seventh and he goes <laughs> he just called him a penis breath I go dude don't say that <laughs> <laughs> your mom will kill us but what does it mean I go let's not worry about that right now <laughs> yeah the
0: rating. For each feature film we have here at the Perspective Reviews podcast via What Cops Watch, we always jump into a scale. The scale works thusly. A 10 is on top of the heap. A gleaming, wonderful spaceship with an appreciative alien jetting back to his home planet. A 1 is on the bottom of the list. Dead ET in a ditch. Everything starts as a 7 in the middle. The numbers go up with positives. The numbers go down with negatives. And Chris, Pat... There are no habsies, Chris. What do you got?
2: I'd give it a nine. I mean, it's you really don't get much higher than this. I mean, other than you know maybe the my two favorite movies of all time, but yeah, this this is definitely a nine. I mean, it's solid. It's uh, it's a classic.
0: I'm not going to be able to stomach all the email we get on your two favorite films, so why don't you share
2: my two favorite films? Well...
0: If you say Lethal Weapon, I'm jumping the desk. No.
2: My two my two favorite films were two films that I saw in the theater. One was with my dad. It was the first Star Wars film, which was called Star Wars, not A New Hope, right. just FYI. Right. right. Um, which we have a perspective review. Which by, we have we'll a perspective review. Right. And then the second film, which I would rate a 10... Mm-hmm is Raiders of the Lost Ark because I saw that in the I saw that in the theater with my grandfather who was in World War II oh wow so he he recognized everything in that film Mm -hmm. and it was just fantastic excellent so those are my two excellent
0: well that's awesome we'll have links to that as well we did a Raiders perspective review and that's actually done with the guy I went and saw Raiders with Carlo Mm -hmm. Bizzese Mm-hmm. Who is a director of short films and commercials? Mm-hmm. And th- the first two guys talking show when we were eleven was in his dad's minivan driving mm-hmm. home from that.
2: There you go. Yeah, that's funny.
1: Pat, what do you got? So I'm going to give you two because I'm going to do my ten-year-old review. <laughs> okay. Ten-year-old review. I'm going to go with a nine. Just like it was a great movie yeah. for a ten-year-old. Yeah. Fifty-year-old review. We're going to go down. It's probably going to be an eight. All right. Um, just because you know, like I said, the link thing didn't hold the water. The the special effects. <laughs> As far as ET itself doesn't hold any water anymore. And then just you throw in the Reese's Pieces factor. Yeah. So it's just knocking off one point for me. So
0: interesting. There is never a time that I cannot try and make time for this feature film. Every time I watch it, I ride the roller coaster of emotions that I showcased here. Just to let you guys know that we truncated this episode just because the time wasn't permitting for what we needed today. So there was a lot more to talk about. And so I hope from the detail that's showcased here, you can see how many different items I. Check boxes on every time I watch this. Yeah, it is amazing storytelling. It is instantly emotional roller coaster ride incarnate. And again, it is that Spielberg submersion therapy that I wish I could make a religion because yeah. there would be plenty of people to go and pay at the pews for it. Yeah, it is an amazing powerhouse of a film. And I give this one a 10. That's where we ask you guys, what would you rate this film again? 1982 Steven Spielberg's. ET the extraterrestrial go over to our website over at whatcopswatch.com fill out the quick web form and tell us what you thought of
2: 1982's ET
0: until next time I'm Mike Wilkerson one of your hosts
2: I'm Chris DiGiuseppe your other host and
1: I'm Pat Dorian.
0: thanks for listening and we'll see you next time